Hey everyone, welcome to MCU Fan Show, episode 303. My name is Sean Gerber, in a moment I'll be joined by Paul Herman for our spoiler review of Marvel Studios' Echo, all five episodes. Before our spoiler review begins, want to let you know once again about Fan Show Plus, that is the podcast that is exclusive for premium subscribers at patreon.com slash Sean Gerber, or on Apple Podcasts via Apple Podcasts subscriptions. And Fan Show Plus is where you can hear us talk about extra MCU topics, including episode-by-episode First impression breakdowns of all five episodes of Echo as I was watching them for the first time or right after I watched them for the first time and also extra MCU news and listener questions answered in MCU mailbag editions of Fan Show Plus, which again, you can find at patreon.com slash Sean Gerber or on Apple Podcasts in the same feed where you're finding these episodes of MCU Fan Show. You can subscribe there via Apple Podcast subscriptions and get those Fan Show Plus episodes. Also, be sure to follow us in those places you can. We are at MCU Fan Show on Instagram, Threads, and X, formerly Twitter. And if you are enjoying the show, we would greatly appreciate a rating and review from you on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. It makes a difference for the podcasts you like. So thank you so much to everyone who has already taken the time to leave their rating and review. And thank you very much in advance to those who are about to. And now, on with our show. How you doing, Paul Herman? I'm doing well after our uh, un- unreleased uh, football podcast that no one will ever hear. But uh, you know, just uh, enjoying the the rain of the winter time of, of the Pacific Northwest, but also just excited because uh, tomorrow is my one of my all time favorite days of the year. I mean it. It's Championship Sunday. I love tomorrow. The tomorrow Championship Sunday is like the best. My favorite day. I think it's better than the Super Bowl. I'm going to say it right now. I think Super Bowl is fine. It's it's fun. But to me, if you're as a a lover of the game of football, Championship Sunday, it doesn't get better than Championship Sunday, in my opinion. So I'm I'm, I'm a big fan of the divisional round because I'm I'm a big fan of two games on Saturday, two games on Sunday. That was uh, in historically or certainly in recent years, especially two years ago. It was just great. One of the best weekends of football in recent memory. But this is not the. None the non-recorded, unreleased football podcast. This is MCU Fan Show, so we'll go ahead and steer ourselves toward the topic here. And we are here to discuss Echo, which obviously has been available for about two and a half weeks-ish on Disney+, Plus, all five episodes. And so apologies for the delay in getting this, uh, this spoiler review up, but obviously we needed time to watch and digest these five episodes. But again, full episode-by-episode breakdowns available on Fanshow Plus at patreon.com slash Sean Gerber and on Apple Podcasts via Apple Podcast subscriptions. But, Paul, before we talk about the show itself and what we thought of these episodes and what we thought of the show collectively with all five episodes together, I want to talk about all five episodes being released Mm. together because this was a departure, not from the Marvel Netflix model, and obviously there's a lot of threads from Marvel Netflix that work their way into this show, obviously, but for Marvel Studios' original series on Disney+, Plus, this is the first time we have seen this sort of binge release. We're normally used to one episode a week. Sometimes at the start of a season for a show, we might get two episodes, but usually one a week is the strategy. We got those daily drops, for What If Season 2, but a little different with that being animated, plus just the anthology nature of What If, I think, makes it a little bit different. 
This is the first time we've had a live-action Marvel Studios original series on Disney Plus released via the binge strategy. And I know there were a lot of questions as to why this was the case. It certainly doesn't appear that this is a new thing that Marvel Studios is going to do on a regular basis with their live-action series. There's been no indication of that. So it calls into question, is this something that Marvel did because maybe there wasn't as much confidence in the show or its ability to sustain the conversation for several weeks or these individual episodes? Or was it just more narrative-driven? Was this ep- was this series just always going to play better if you could watch it all at once? And I think we'll answer some of those questions as we go on throughout the show. But to start, Paul, I am curious with how you watched it. I did not mm-hmm. binge the series on my first watch. I did for my second watch, but yeah. for my first run through with this, I did not binge it because, frankly, I've come to enjoy the weekly release oh. schedule. And, and obviously, yeah. I we wouldn't be here if I was doing weekly uh, echo viewings because I wouldn't have finished the series yet. But <laughs> I did try to space them out a few days at a time because I kind of wanted to savor and think about and consider the individual episodes before just immediately moving on because I've just come to prefer. We had the binge model with Marvel Netflix. We've had the weekly release with the Marvel Studios Disney Plus series, and I've come to prefer the weekly release over the binge. So I watched the episodes individually spaced apart uh, a few days each. And then, as I said, for the second time, for my second go, I binged all five episodes consecutively, all pretty much in one sitting. And I have to say, neither of it really changed or shaped my overall opinion of the show. It was about the same after binging it because I wanted to see if I watched it as if maybe that was it It was the way it was intended to be seen with a, a binge watch. I tried it that way as well. I arrived at the same conclusion, which we'll talk about as we get into it. But first, Paul, how did you mm-hmm. watch the show and why? Well, I watched um, basically episode by episode. I think I'm trying to think if I watched two episodes back to back. In my life, Sean, with 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 a child, it's it's hard. Yeah, I know you don't it, always have as much you know freedom of choice, but yeah, yeah. But but funny you should say that of choice because um, I what I did I basically and this is this is it's such a fascinating conversation because I did. Not what I did, but just in general. It's like because, Loki, we're talking free will all over again. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, I I watched it basically. If you if you you know, gun to my head, episode by episode. But I do that thing where I'd watch like one and a half, stop, go back, that kind of thing. And um, Lulu was like, she's three, and she was like fascinated because I'd be watching on my iPad, like she watched like Peppa Pig or something like that, and you know, just trying to get get it in. So I get, I, I didn't want to, you know, cause we were supposed to do it last week, so I was like, I gotta get this in, you know. And so I had, I wanted to make sure I was getting it, and she was like fascinated by it. So like, basically, I watch it with my family sometimes, like on my, I was like, are you sure we should really watch this? And so we kind of, you know, but but if it's, for the most part, there's a couple of violent scenes here and there, like, you know, whatever. But she didn't watch the whole thing, obviously. But she was interested in watching it. So I ended up watching it with my wife a lot, which has not been typical normally. And um, so I kind of, I watched it randomly, very randomly. And so, I, yeah, so it took about, I'd say, you know, a, was it a, over a week? About? Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's that's about probably about how long it took me as I, I think I finished yeah. it you know, maybe a couple days after or something like that. Um, maybe, maybe closer to two. I'd have to go back and look at it. But yeah, I, on average, I, I spaced it about, you know, spaced it out about three days or so between episodes. Cause again, I, 
I just prefer watching it like that as opposed to all in one sitting now, which I used to do. I mean, I used to do 13 episodes of Daredevil in a day or if not in a weekend because they usually dropped on Fridays. But part of the reason I didn't like doing that is, uh, I mean, I couldn't stop myself because, you know, impulse control was lacking clearly. But at the same time, like that feeling at the end of it of like, oh, man, I so much anticipation for 13 hours of Daredevil, and now it's all gone until we get another season. So I kind of like being able to space things out. And also because we don't have like a a firm premiere date for another live action Marvel Studios uh, series on Disney Plus, like we don't have one as of this recording, unless I'm forgetting something. But we have some that are projected to be out this year, but we don't know exactly when we're getting something else. I mean, obviously, we know we're getting Deadpool 3, this summer, which recently wrapped. But at the same time, yeah, I wanted to savor this a little bit. Uh, But as I said, I didn't really notice if there was an intention in terms of guiding the viewers experience with the show perception of the show by, you know, offering the at least the opportunity to binge it all in one sitting. I tried it that way, just as I did spacing episodes uh, out. I didn't really get anything different out of the series by uh, by binging it. And now let's go ahead and, and turn the conversation towards our, our overall thoughts on this series. Mm-hmm. Uh, before we, of course, we'll get into the the details and and, and dive deep as, as we like to do here. But mm-hmm. overall with Echo, I think it is a collection of some really, really great scenes and a lot of really, really great ideas and some fantastic performances throughout this entire series that just doesn't come together as cohesively as I would have wanted it to, or I felt like it should, or it could. I think it introduces certain character threads, certain narrative ideas that it it doesn't really complete or resolve, which is it, you don't always have to fix everything, but it feels like some things were just literally dropped, not like the resolution was intentionally, there is no resolution, right? Because sometimes that happens for characters in their journeys. But it just felt like a show that at times was a little bit at war with itself for exactly what it wanted to be. Like I do think, and we'll get to it, the finale is uh, is a pretty dramatic shift in I think what the series had been about. And I, I don't know that it... So when the finale tries to take that turn, they're all well-intentioned and, and really good ideas on their own, but they don't feel like they were sufficiently built to because it felt like there were other threads that they were building towards um, more specifically throughout. So I I thought the, and we'll go through it, but I, I thought the first episode was great. I thought the series got off to a great start. Second episode, not nearly as great, but still solid. And then we look at the third episode is where things, you know, kind of had a bit of a missed, uh, uh, a missed, a lot of missed opportunities from my perspective followed by the fourth episode, which I thought was uh, was very strong. Obviously, that's the one that has a lot more of the, the history of Maya's relationship with Wilson Fisk. And then the finale, as I said, there are a couple of great scenes that I absolutely love in the finale, but I would love them more if they had a, a better story around them that had really weaved them into and, and made them feel more like a part of the story. So to some extent, the series does just feel kind of, even though it was a binge show, where a binge watch opportunity where you would like to think it, it plays really well as all five episodes consecutively. Whether I watched them days apart or back to back to back to back to back, it still kind of felt like in, in some ways this series was cobbled together. And, and maybe it was. I, I don't know. There are a lot of writers credited for each of these episodes more than we typically see. And I don't know that that's 
that that's why this uh, why the end result was what it was this series. Um, but a lot that I enjoyed in this series, but a lot just a lot of missed opportunities. What's on the screen is very good, but it also feels like there are just a lot of things missing. You know, I it's funny, Sean. I don't I don't I can't argue with that. I think that's really I think that's a fair criticism of the show. And I, it sounds like you still enjoyed it for the, for the most part, but there, it's not like a obviously it's not a, it's yeah. not a Loki, you know, a Loki for us. I, and, I look at and, Loki as and, like yeah, and I wasn't asking it. it to be I wasn't requiring sure, it to sure. be like I don't. I don't go into a new Marvel thing saying in my saying to myself or to anyone else, and I think it's it's something we really need to get out of the habit of doing in general is expecting it to be another all time great, another milestone, a landmark moment, the, this and that. Like it right, doesn't have right. to be that. It can be really good, really solid, really fun, whatever you know, positive, uh, whatever compliments you want, whatever praise you want that you prefer out of it. It can be those things, and it doesn't have to. It doesn't have to be all time greatness every single time like a win right. is still a win um and so i'm i'm fine with uh really i would have been fine with a really solid series which parts of, a lot of this series is very solid or, or better than that but it also just it just feels a little bit incomplete in in spots undercooked right yeah i think i think i totally get that impression a little bit too they <clears throat> here's here's what i'm gonna say and this is gonna be maybe it's a cop-out but I to kind of go back, kind of leads back into um, the conversation we had about how it's consumed or how it's how it's made and presented to us. I for one was I kind of I love I love the idea of what they did here because as 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 a whole because what they did was they gave us five episodes, they were forty minutes long, and I didn't feel like I was jumping into like a thirteen episode like oh my god I gotta like you know what I mean like it felt like daunting and and I know like. I yeah, think Dantine. This series desperately needed a sixth episode, though. I, I think you're right, I, I, and so I don't, I don't disagree. And with I'm that. guessing at some point it probably had one because that's how Marvel has made these series. They've been six for dramas, nine for comedies, or or WandaVision, which was like a comedy that morphed into a drama. You know, drama. as we as we progress through the story. So, like, yeah, this was a break in form, which makes me like it was weird when it was only not weird. It was. Against the norm uh, for Marvel Studios Disney Plus series when we found out this was five. And I was wondering, was this... And I don't know. Did they have five episode scripts or did they have six that became five? And when did it become five? Like before or after they shot the show? That's where Mm -hmm. I just have uh, some question marks here. Because as I said, it just feels like there's a lot that's missing. And so with all that said... And maybe I gave, and, and this is maybe my biasness of Marvel, and like my, I always have like my brother, like I feel like his voice over my shoulder, Sean, of being like, "You like everything." Like he always tells me that you like everything. You totally uh, don't. That's me. Yeah. I'm, I'm the like everything I, I, guy I, on this show. Right, right, it, dude. I, by the way, for those who know, like my, I was telling people that on my on the comic binge uh, live stream the other day, and Chris, you know, one of our, our close friends, goes, "No, you don't." <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> not even close. Not even close. Not even so a little I, bit. I, I told my brother that he's laughed. I'm like, it just tells you, like your 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 conception, your perception of me is wrong. But anyway, um, the thing is, I, I really, I, I I I will admit though, I gave this series of the benefit of the doubt. I think a lot, and I think I was a little bit more forgiving because of the compression of episodes, Sean. Of coming, it's, and it's weird because coming off of what if. 
of how greatly compressed those were. I mean, and I think those are really tightly well-written shows. And I mean that, and I'm not saying Echo wasn't, but Echo definitely was trying to do a lot with less time. And they like, I think that undercooked, um, thing is Echo just seems like minds were changing throughout the making of the series. I I don't know where, and I don't know when, but it just seems like minds were changing because it has, it introduces certain things it even kind of promises uh, conversations that don't end up happening in the show. And, and mm-hmm. so and as I said, the, the finale really does kind of shift. Right. Because I, I think, yeah, it, it, it starts from this character arc of of Maya being, you know, the one who wants her own empire because that's what she saw from Wilson Fisk. And, you know, we got to answer that question of why she wants that and does she really want it? And they don't really get into that. Why? And then. We get by the time we get to the finale, although that's still along the lines of what the first four episodes are dealing with. And then the fifth episode turns into Maya has to fight for her people. But the reason she has to fight for her people is she drew a war to her hometown where all her people live. Like, I I don't really and it doesn't really ask her to account for that, even though she's specifically warned against it by her uncle, uh, Henry uh, Black Crow Lopez, like. She's warned about anyway, I, I'm getting ahead of myself, but no, no, it, there, it, but there are think, things where it's there are shifts in this series where the finale just feels like it's trying to put a button on everything, um, except it's putting a button on on the show that the first four episodes on, on a different show, I think, than a lot of the first four episodes were other than the from the kingpin perspective. OK, but everything else outside of that, I kind of felt like it got shortchanged, like once kingpin enters the show it really becomes a lot more about maya and wilson fisk again minus some of the other stuff and and i know the seeds for maya's ancestry and all that stuff was playing along throughout the 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 episode so when that all comes together and the way that it comes together in the finale that aspect of it i absolutely love what i feel is lacking is what that really means for maya and what her journey has been up until that point it's not fully accounting for everything it's not fully accounting for everything that maya has done all the choices that she's made and it's also not really examining the same questions that I feel like the other the previous episodes were examining about Maya in terms of who she really is, who she is really and what she actually wants. It's kind of like she gets this new charge of here's who you can be. But it doesn't it just doesn't integrate with a lot of the other stuff that was part of the story. But rather than just continuing to to go around uh, around these different points, it's easier to elaborate if we go through the show. So I do want to start. Not yeah, I want to start 19 and a half minutes into the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do want to talk about the first episode, um, which was written by Marion Dare and uh, Josh Feldman and Steve Paul Judd and Ken Christensen, directed by Sidney Freeland. And I thought that this episode was really strong on a number of fronts. Like if we were just talking about the first episode, I thought I was in for something really great. Not necessarily to where it shifted to where now it has to be an all-time great or I'm going to be upset, but I really thought the first episode was a win. I thought that the initial backstory in Tomahawk, Oklahoma in 2007, Maya's family telling stories, uh, her dad, William Lopez, who we met in Hawkeye, played by Zahn uh, McLarnon, her mom, uh, Taloa, played by Katerina Zervogel, Scully, played by the great Graham Greene, uh, her grandmother, Chola, played by Tantu Cardinal, who I loved in Three Pines uh, on the Amazon series, was starring Alfred Molina. You should all check it out if you haven't seen it already. Um, they all did a great job, as well as see- meeting young Maya 
and Bonnie and just seeing what that relationship meant to Maya as Bonnie's trying to correct her that they're cousins. Maya insists that they're sisters because that's the closeness that Maya feels to Bonnie. And of course, we know what happens. The Maya wants hot chocolate. They're out. She rides with her mom to the store. There's uh, the brakes have been cut. There's an accident. Her mom passes away. That is also how Maya is, sustains the injury where she loses her leg. And so this tragic backstory and showing us the source of, of Maya's anger and pain, something that's been exploited by Wilson Fisk, as we'll find out later on in the show. I thought this was a really great job of portraying this family and instantly establishing the bonds between them. And that's where I got really attached to the show was because of that. And I, and I wanted really more of the exploration of this family. And there were definitely moments. I'm not trying to take away uh, credit unfairly from this show. There's definitely a lot of that stuff that I love. But I also feel like it kind of lost track of some of this as it uh, went on, particularly between Maya and Bonnie, which I'll expand more on uh, as we get to it. But and of course, we get the whole setup. Obviously, it's uh, the brake line being cut was intended for William. He has uh, he's already got vengeance, as we see. But that's not an, that's certainly not enough for uh, Chula, who was Taloa's mother, Maya's grandmother. She's lost a daughter. She disowns William. And effectively, that means she's disowning Maya. So the kids are separated, Maya and Bonnie, as Maya and William take off to New York. And when we get to New York, Paul, they did a great job, I thought, of... Because the whole thing with this being the Marvel Spotlight series, right? This yep, is the one yep, where yep. you're not supposed to have to have done as much homework, whatever. You can listen to a Fan Show Plus episode where I talk all about my thoughts on Marvel Spotlight and what I think it really does or doesn't mean and, and how much it does or doesn't solve. But what I will say is that I love the way this first episode didn't just have these flashbacks very quickly just for the sake of the exposition. It wasn't just a couple lines of dialogue, which I think is fine when they do that, but I really appreciated them taking the time since this was a five-episode series that should have been six, but because with this being a five-episode series, I like the way that they really integrated these scenes, stuff we saw from Hawkeye. Some moments we didn't, but a lot of moments we saw lifted directly from Hawkeye. And rather than just treating them as real quick flashbacks, real quick FYIs, they were genuinely incorporated into the story. They were organically incorporated into the story. That's the part that I thought was really, really great. So if you hadn't seen Hawkeye and you also hadn't seen Daredevil, that's fine. You really don't need to have seen that because not only are they just telling you the information that you need, they're showing it to you in the way they integrated uh, a lot of these flashbacks or moments that we saw previously from Hawkeye. So that, Paul, I mean, there's other things that I'll uh, I'll get into here, but I'll, I'll pause for a second for you to weigh in. But I really thought the way they integrated Maya's past and they treated it as it didn't feel repetitive, I should say. As somebody who obviously saw Hawkeye several times and love it mm -hmm. and know everything that happens in that show forwards and backwards, I still appreciated seeing it in this new context from this different perspective, from Maya's perspective with her story. I appreciated mm -hmm. that. But I also think that, and I can't know this for sure because I'm not that person, but if you are somebody who didn't see Hawkeye or you did once and you don't really remember it all that well... yeah. That's and probably you, the best one. And yeah. you feel like you're watching this for the first time. It works as it, it works as part of this show just as well as it worked as part of Hawkeye. Yeah, I 
I was really impressed with the first episode. I think that's, I think that's probably the best of the season, though. Definitely I, the best in my view. Yeah, I, I think it's it's probably the best. Followed up by to me the the ending, but that's I'll get to that later. Um, this first episode I thought was brilliantly edited together, and kudos to the writing team. I think everyone involved because the continuity of the uh, of the of the time of Daredevil to to uh, Hawkeye of adding different scenes, new scenes, etc., was so seamless to me. To me, anyway, in my opinion. That I was, it really helped me get ready for this echo, uh, these echo episodes. It, it felt like the ultimate great primer episode without having it, but it was not like a, this is no disrespect to anyone on YouTube, but like watching a YouTube video of someone editing things together really well or something like that. It's like, it was a nice, because, because what I loved about this, Sean, was that you, you said it best. It was from her perspective, adding these different scenes, but in a different context and having like th these other scenes kind of prop up these other things different ways, it's just a, you get a different perspective, and it's perfect for what to me sets, sets you up for this whole series. And and I do mean that. Like I, I it sounds like I, I series more than you did at this point. And 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 what we'll say that like I I thought this episode did it was the ultimate reason why because I I really got to know Maya again and also better. So I really was looking forward to going on this journey with her with all the new additions of, of the scenes of the ancestry and stuff, which I loved as well. So you put all that into it. It's a really fascinating episode, to be honest. And I think it does lay the groundwork for what not just for spotlight, but for what Marvel should be doing for all this stuff, like for everything, you know, whether it be. Uh, movies or TV shows, or whatever. Don't be afraid to revisit these scenes and put these scenes back in that we need to, mm -hmm. um, even if they are kind of chunky, ch chunky scenes like the Hawkeye scene, where I, which I love. A Hawkeye, I, I need to revisit that show. That show is so good. I, I that is one of the better Marvel shows for sure. And Jeremy Renner is so good in that series. And you know me, I'm not the biggest uh, Hawkeye fan uh, of the MCU, but Renner, I, I love. Hawkeye so much and I think Renner's performance is so good in that even though it's, it's we see him just for a brief minute but I love when he's talking with her in that scene it's such a powerful moment and I'm just like yeah like we really to me really like flex in my opinion flex the fact that this is a connected universe show people like hey there's that one guy in this and like to me like I've, I've heard like my good buddy Tim he wasn't a big fan of the editing in that episode. To me, I'm the exact opposite. I think it's brilliant. I think they should incorporate this more because it may not be, it may not, everyone may not love the episode as much as we do, Sean, but I feel it did it. I feel it probably helped people get into the show because it seems like the show has done well um, from what I can tell, things that I'm reading. Again, I don't have no idea what, what makes it, per, you know, I have no idea if it's successful or not in reality, but it seems like I've seen reports that like, it's you know maybe it's helped certain things i don't know whatever but regardless i think this episode if it, that's the case then i think this episode definitely is the catalyst for that because it did a great job it did you know teasing things you know showing us like daredevil again and like hawkeye again and it was a great reminder of why we love the mcu which is that the inner continuity or the connected to connected, the connected tissue and continuity that we all share now, I agree with all of that. I mean, I don't really think we're that far apart on I don't think we're that far apart on the series overall, but we're definitely not far apart at all. I think we're pretty much on the same page with how much we enjoyed this first episode. I mean, I found myself 
as I was watching the series for the second time, just thinking, wow, this episode is really good and, and thinking that maybe I was ultimately going to like the overall show even better on the second viewing. And I arrived in the same place, which I know maybe to start has sounded a little more negative and I've been more critical, but I hope you're also starting to hear, dear listener, that I did like a lot of this show. Um, I'm not completely failing as the one who likes everything here. Maybe I didn't like everything about this show, but I liked a lot of it, especially this first episode, and not just the way it integrated Maya's past from other stories in the MCU, like Hawkeye, but I also think the foundational stuff it does with Wilson Fisk and, and Maya, and we got to see more of how she became part of his organization as she was lashing out after the death of her father, him kind of taking that as an opportunity to even pull her deeper into his whole organization and his whole web of crime and everything else, like him taking advantage of that. And of course, we see how he takes advantage of that even from an even younger age from Maya later on in the show. But him really getting into this whole thing of she's not alone, the way he appeals to her, speaking of history, of I lost my father when I, you know, my father was also killed when I was young. Yeah, Wilson Fisk is the one who did it. But I love that this show treats it as a reveal for later on. Because, yeah, maybe a lot of us watching were remembering, hey, he killed his own dad in Daredevil. We saw it. I mean, he had reasons defending himself and his mother, but... He killed his own father. It's not the same as what happened with Maya losing her father, William. But it's, I like it on either level. If you know and remember what happened in Daredevil, then it still is, it just adds another layer to how manipulative you see Wilson Fisk as being, which, you know, he's as manipulative as it gets. If you don't know that or you don't remember that, then I do think that reveal just kind of completes the circle later on in the series, and it works, I think it works well either way, from either potential experience that a viewer could have, which is kind of tricky to do, but I, I think they tow that line very successfully. And then when we get Maya going on her first real in-the-field mission for Wilson Fisk, I thought that sequence was great. It has probably my favorite moment of the show, certainly my favorite moment from a performance standpoint. We see Maya joining these other two guys, and they're not impressed by her. They're not happy to be working with her. But as they're going through and we're going to they're going to have this fight, they're there to kill and shoot a lot of people. We see Maya not immediately jump into the fray. And it's really important that she doesn't do that right away because it just kind of shows there was a line there for Maya that it seemed like she was rightfully hesitant to cross. Maybe she really didn't want to. And who knows what would have happened were she not attacked in that situation? Somebody, she's not even really fully in the room. Somebody dives, like she's at the doorway. Somebody tackles her and then Maya is defending herself. And as she's defending herself, gets the guy in a guillotine choke, breaks his neck. And the performance part that I love is Alakwa Cox as Maya. That look on her face is amazing. It's powerful. It's moving. It's tragic as well. Like it's just... She portrays all of it. It's all there in her performance of Maya realizing what has just happened. That the line that she wasn't sure she wanted to cross, maybe she never would have. Well, now she has. Here it is. She has taken a life. And it definitely sells the point. They don't specifically say it, but her reaction tells us that this is the first time she's ever killed anyone. And the, and the line that she crosses there, it is permanent, right? From her perspective there, it's a no turning back sort of moment. 
she's sad about it. It's this loss of whatever. I mean, a lot of her innocence was lost at a young age, but whatever was left of it seems to evaporate right there in that moment, and she knows it, and then it turns into Maya Unleashed. I could be a little critical of like the contradictory tone of that performance in that moment, followed by, oh, let's pump up the music, and now it's badass that Maya is, is kicking people's ass in the room. I could, you know, uh, bump up against that a little bit, but not very much because I think it's still they've sold the tragedy of what's just happened. But it is also Maya is badass and and she's unleashed in that moment. And we see her taking out all these guys, including the security guy who groped her moments before. And so and then we get into Maya versus Daredevil. And it's a great one on one fight that ends at pretty much a stalemate. All of that I loved and the way they integrated Daredevil into this, I thought was great. They didn't have a whole lot of backstory for him and who is this guy, whatever. It's a lot of people know, or if people don't know, he's a guy who clearly is a superhero type guy because he's in full costume, not, you know, the black bandana and whatever and taped up hands, full daredevil suit. And he's talking about how he was watching the bad guys all night. And then Maya and, and her group ruined everything. That's enough as far as where this guy's place is in this story and what it ultimately does for Maya in terms of how much it impresses Fisk that she was able to hold her own with Daredevil. But that sequence, the tragedy of Maya crossing that line and knowing exactly how and when she did it, as well as just the the overall fight choreography and the stunts and the, the Daredevil versus Echo battle uh, was awesome. And so that was definitely a highlight of the episode. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and pretend that that's not the, my favorite part of the of the series. It, it probably is. And I have other I have legitimately ever other favorite favorite parts. But anytime you put one of my favorite superheroes uh, it, and what maybe one of the best uh, adapted ver- live action versions of a superhero ever, which I yes, I, that's what I did say about Daredevil in like it's the accurate. show. It's that. I mean, come on. I'm, I'm not. I'm not gonna. I'm, it's gonna be hard for me to be like. Now nah, that's only second. Come on, bro. I mean, come on. This is like, this is legit. Like that was a fantastic scene, and I think it is a lot. I mean, for me, in if you look back at it in context of the entire show, Sean, it's really. I mean, this goes out saying, but I'm just gonna say it anyway. I don't get care. To me, it really re- reinforces even more so the fact of how important Maya is to Kingpin, and obviously because he he says it right. But I think it. To me, you really have to remember this episode and, and that scene for why he's acting the certain way he is, because the uniqueness of of Echo, which I, I love the change of. And again, I, I know the Marvel character decently well, like somewhat well. I don't think I don't think she has any tight of kingpin or anything like that. I think she's mostly a hand uh, assassin, if I'm not mistaken. But again, I'm not the biggest Echo 616 comic fan, um, whatever. But I love in this in the MCU that she represents a different side of Wilson that we really haven't seen before besides maybe his wife is that when he cares about someone, mm-hmm. he does it selfishly. Like that's, that's, that's what kind of makes him a yeah. unique character. He right? cares about them in his way. Yeah, ex- exactly. Well in said. his way for his purposes. Exactly. But what's interesting is I think people I've seen, I've been, someone had mentioned to me, so I respect and like, had said like they kind of you know really defeated like Kingpin's like uh, dominance and like his uh, power as a villain at the end of this, this series. And I don't. I'm gonna push back against that because I, mean, I think he's literally about to become the mayor of New York. So I I just don't think so. 
Well, but right. But I, but I do think I think from a power standpoint, right, like from that whole like he's a legitimate threatening villain. What I'm going to say this, though, you got to remember this episode is a great setup. And, and I think that that part is so important because she represents this someone he actually does care for. He does care for in his way her look to her as family. And though maybe you may not think that was written well enough in Hawkeye or put well enough in Hawkeye. That I'm not going to argue that, but I will say I think in this compressed time again I'm I'm really into like compressing as much story as possible in the in the, in the best way right now after what if and this I'm like man I really like I love putting these in short stories give it to me don't let me I don't want to watch a 12 episode season of like one thing right whatever um there's pros and cons of both right but anyway I do think they did a good job of giving us what we needed for this show for this and. This episode does a great job of setting all that up for that finale. And I almost feel like people need to remember the, how important that is because he loves her and he also views her as a weapon, like a tool. So it's like it's this really complex – it adds a complexity, which I love to Wilson, and the fact that like it's not his wife where it's like you know he loves her in his way, whatever – but it's like it's someone he's close with. He does have that relation with him with her that he loves, but he also has he can't you know as as our as our good friend Justin likes to tell me, uh, people are gonna people and yeah. Fis- Fis- no, he's is still fist. using he's still totally yeah. using her, and I, I think that's well the what I've always found fascinating about Wilson Fisk as a character, especially with Vincent D'Onofrio and his portrayal of the character through the Netflix Phenomenal. series and now for Phenomenal. Marvel Studios. Yeah, the performances are outstanding, but. What makes them outstanding is he does such a great job of playing it so you can you can really see it as an audience member that this guy not only wants, but he needs to feel like on some level he's doing good. He needs to feel like there's some noble purpose that he's fulfilling, even as he's doing terrible it's, things. It's brilliant. brilliant. So and, and it's hard for that to really come through. I mean, you can you can script it that way, but it's only going to come through in the performance. Uh, I mean, you as much as you can have great writing and you do need great writing, I'm not trying to be dismissive of it, but it can only go so far because the act, I mean, as actors have to do, right? They ultimately have to make you believe it. And Vincent D'Onofrio does such an extraordinary job in all aspects of Wilson Fisk, but especially that one where in his mind, he really loves her and loves her like a daughter and all of this stuff. But he doesn't really. He wants to believe he feels that really, but he obviously doesn't feel that in the sense that he needs to or in the sense that he really should or what that would really mean. For example, William obviously wanted to keep Maya away from this life. Wilson Fisk pulled her right into it and kept pulling her deeper and deeper into it because it served his purposes, because he saw the violent potential that she had. And so that's where, again, Wilson Fisk as a character is just so fascinating. And we'll get to, you know, what it means for him as we uh, once we actually get to the finale. But we get more montage stuff. We get the, you know, how, of course, the the meeting between Maya and Clint Barton, where he reveals that it was Kingpin who actually wanted her father dead. And that, um, you know, yeah, it was his sword that stabbed Maya's father. But Kingpin was the one who ultimately, you know, pointed Barton in that direction. So... Uh, with all of that being revealed, then it leads us to that moment that we saw from the first uh, at the end of the first Hawkeye series or that we didn't see that we just more heard of. Uh, and this time we actually see the shot that Maya fires through the eye of Wilson Fisk. And that catches us up to the present day, which, again, as I said, 
such a great job of making this part of the story of this episode, not here's what you missed, but part of this story. So now these scenes uh, work equally well in two different Marvel Studios Disney Plus series. It's just great the way that they did that. And I don't want them to do the exact same thing every single time for every Marvel movie and every show when the character has some backstory that you need to fill the audience in on. Obviously, anything you do, no matter how well you do it, if you do it over and over again, it becomes formula and it stops working. So they have to just continue to challenge themselves to find different ways of filling the audience in, but treat it as doing more than filling the audience in, I think is the the key takeaway here. And uh, one of the the key success stories, I think, of this first episode of Echo. But our present day is five months after Maya shot Fisk. We see Maya at a truck stop with an, an open wound. We see her arriving in Oklahoma, stitching herself up with dental floss. That just looked super, super painful. And then as she is getting some rest, she sees visions of Chaffa, the first Choctaws. We're going to hear more about the legend, the legends of Maya's ancestry as uh, the show goes on. And then someone is coming home. The, her old grandmother's house is, is empty, but someone's coming home. And it is uh, her cousin, Biscuits, who's mentioned off screen as not being there as part of the, the camp out from the, the flashback sequence of 2007. I guess he was homesick that time. But now the grown-up Biscuits, played by Cody Lightning. Quick aside here, Biscuits is the MVP of the show for me. I absolutely love Biscuits. He's so much fun. Such a great character. Uh, you know, also don't want to disrespect Billy Jack the dog, but Biscuits is, I absolutely love Biscuits in this show. And Maya doesn't want anyone, unfortunately, task poor Biscuits with the task of making sure that nobody else knows that she's there. He's not allowed to tell anyone that she's in town. And when we see her in town, we see her uh, checking in on Bonnie, who is now a paramedic, played by the criminally underutilized Devery Jacobs in this show. More on that as we go on. And then she gets to the roller rink to catch up with her uncle, Henry Black Crow Lopez, played by Chosky Spencer. And we're also seeing a, uh, a clerk named Vicky, played by Thomas E. Sullivan, who was Nathaniel Malick on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. So even though the Netflix stuff has been grandfathered into the MCU, maybe not so much for all of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., or it's just, uh, you know, same actor playing a different character, which has also happened in the MCU. But he's the one dropping the dime on Maya, so we know more trouble is coming to town. And then Maya gets uh, stitch, uh, stitched up by the resident mortician. And then we really learn, though, why Maya is there. As she and Henry are on the, the water tower, uh, Henry is telling her that if Bonnie you know, points the telescope in the direction of Bonnie and tells Maya that if uh, if Bonnie finds out Maya's there and didn't go see her, then it's going to break her heart. And Maya tries to act like Bonnie's feelings are not her business. And Henry's disagreement with that, also not her business. Maya is there for Fisk shipping. She wants to send a message and would prefer to have Henry's help in sending that message. But as he says, he's not going to bring a war there to the people he loves. Maya, in terms of why she wants to do this, the kingpin had its time. Had The king had his time. Now it's time for a queen. Speaking of the king we see, as we already knew, that he is alive at the very end of the episode. So as far as the present day stuff, Paul, I, I again, I, I love the introduction to Biscuits. I like the introduction to Henry Lopez. I like this conversation. And this is where I felt like it was planting some seeds that could really go well here. Obviously, Maya trying to avoid a lot of her family. And I felt like this is where it was towing a line here that I, I I really appreciate it in this episode. I just don't feel like it really stuck with some of these elements enough, particularly introducing like this tension, this rift between 
Maya and Bonnie, which is really only one-sided. We we already see that Bonnie was texting Maya when her father died, and we will find out later that Bonnie has been texting and emailing Maya this whole time. It's not a drifting apart. It's one side ignoring the other, and that just creates the question of why. You know, why would Maya ignore Bonnie? Does she feel like, is she keeping Bonnie at arm's length from this life that she's living? Is she doing it for Bonnie's own protection? But there's a little bit of a contradiction there, at least a little bit of one, because here she is trying to start a war from Tamaha, Oklahoma, or there already is a war, but she's trying to escalate things from her hometown, which maybe doesn't seem like the best potential move uh, in terms of wanting to secure all of her family's safety, which characters do contradictory things all the time. So that in and of itself is is not a miss. And I'm, I'm fine with how it's all set up here. My issues come with more of, of how it's paid off, because I feel like some of the some of the family tension is explored. Some of it just isn't. It's introduced and then not really explored, which is where that incomplete feeling that I have uh, comes from in, in various ways throughout this series. But as far as just setting up and establishing, here's what Maya is trying to do in the present. I think this episode does a, a great job of that, of now that we got Maya's full backstory, successfully integrating elements from other shows, as well as new things that we hadn't seen. And now here we are with Maya and her current mission. All of this stuff I thought was very well and got the show off to as strong of a start as I, I think you could hope for. Yeah. So I, 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 I'm going to, uh, the one thing I'm going to say about the, some of the unexplored tension, which I, again, those are all things I think are valid. I, when, when I'm watching this, some of the things that I, I take for the story elements that I, I kind of like just kind of went with. Like for the, for instance, the whole like maybe it's time for a queen and we'll start from here. Those are all like the, all the things you're saying all make sense. And I think I always looked at it from this perspective that I think Echo uh, Maya 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 is all over the place. And I think that to me is what's so fascinating. And maybe they didn't do a good job of that exploring that as much. I kind of just took I kind of went with that idea because because to me, she lost her dad. She just shot her other close relative. That's, and yeah, that's the thing. But too. I feel like that's I feel like that's just that's, a, a dramatic. That's a narrative cop out of like it may, maybe uh, the characters like, emotionally all over the place. So who knows what they'll do and, and, and why you do need to have some whys here. So when she says she wants to be a queen, that's a thing of like when you introduce what a character wants. It's just basic storytelling that you've got to really explore why. But, but I think, but I think again, for me, that I not saying this is for everybody, but for me, the fact that she grew up with her dad in this business and her uncle, to me, it seems just natural for her to take that spot. I think that to me is where I, where I went with it again, not saying anyone else has, I think it's a, fair thing what you're saying too i want to make that yeah. very clear i don't, this is I don't not have like a, a, yeah and to be clear i don't have a problem with that being what she wants or that's mm -hmm. being what she thinks she wants that happens all the time it happens in marvel stories loki is a huge example of that a yeah. character who wants a thing or thinks that's what he wants because he hasn't really thought about why he wants it same thing for hella in that great episode of what if season two right character wants a thing makes sense that they would want that thing based on what you know and understand about that character and then you can examine that they want that thing and here's why. And it's good that they want it for that reason. Or maybe it's not really what they want. Maybe it's what they thought they wanted because they thought it was going to do something that it couldn't really do for them or that they didn't really need or there was something else that was better and more worthwhile for them to want and pursue. Those are pretty, you know, just basic storytelling notions, obviously easier said than done to actually put them into a quality narrative. 
But those are just standard things that you try to do in storytelling. And I feel like this episode does a great job of setting all of that up. But then Mm -hmm. it doesn't stick with a lot of these things. Like why does we don't really answer the question of why Maya wants to be a queen. We do ultimately have her decide not to do it when Kingpin offers her the chance to be exactly that. Granted, a queenpin working under the kingpin as opposed to really having her own empire. But Maya, I don't think Maya really wants to have a criminal empire where she's killing a bunch of people. She was doing that for him. And I feel like that's something that they could have explored on a deeper level. But Mm -hmm. again, as far as setting it up and establishing these things here, this is where they did a good job. And based on the way this scene ended, I was definitely looking forward to a lot of things of of where it would go from here. And I also love, you know, we we didn't uh, talk about in this episode. I love the introduction with the legend of, of Chaffa and the first Choctaw people. And I love the way these first few episodes opened. Although that's also something that got dropped. You know, the first three episodes start with these kind of ancestral flashback moments. And then we kind of go away from that. Now, in the fourth episode, it's OK, because that story comes later in the episode. But the fifth episode, which I guess it didn't need to that episode's titled Maya, so it could be more present day. But there are certain things in certain formats and f- that they didn't necessarily stick with throughout the series, which, again, they didn't necessarily have to. But I, we got to we're we're 50 minutes in. So got to start yeah, moving we, through. We, these. Yeah, so go, go, go for it. Go here for we it. go with uh, ep- the first episode entitled Chaffa, second episode entitled Loak, written by Marion Dare and Ken Christensen, and Josh Feldman, and Stephen Paul Judd, and Rebecca Roanhorse, and Bobby Wilson. Uh, well, that was the story, teleplay, by Mario D- uh, Dyer and Josh Feldman, and Stephen Paul Judd, and Ellen Morton, directed by Sidney Freeland. I love the opening flashback sequence of this, 1200 AD in Alabama, with uh, with lacrosse or stickball. I-, I love that uh, we have the character of Loak, who's all cocky and all happy with how things are going until the ringer is brought in from the other team. And we see the the stakes of this as the losers of this match are going to be uh, banished from those lands forever. Loak, played by Morningstar Angeline. I love, again, I, I love the cocky sports athletic attitude. Like all of that is awesome. I question the strategy of the opposing team of saving their best player for when they're down like four or five to one. Maybe not the best move, but in any event, uh, I guess they were going for the element of surprise. But Loak, we see uh, eventually when things are looking down, when it looks like they're uh, it's a dire situation, Loak is able to connect to uh, Chaffa as played by Julia Jones, and then she ends up scoring uh, the game winner. This sequence I thought was great, and I love that Marvel Studios and everybody, they spent the time, the money, and the effort to do this, because this was a big set piece. This was very expensive to do, I can assure you, and they made it an exciting sports sequence in this show. Um, Again, I, I do question the strategy of the opposing team, but also it shows how these things work, right? It shows connections to Chaffa, connections back to, you know, echoing through time from one generation to the next, we see that effect that is going to play its part throughout this show. We see it happen here in how Loak ultimately prevailed. And we'll have to wonder and see, of course, what this means for Maya, which we do see uh, uh, over the course of the show. But also, what does it mean for Maya to prevail? What exactly does victory look like for her? Again, questions for later on in the show. But the opening flashback sequence here in 1200 AD, Paul, I, I thought was awesome. This was great. Yeah, I, I thought I, was, I love all of flashback scenes, to be quite honest with you. Like, I think those yeah, are some of my I mean, the, the, the Tuklo one and the next one might be my favorite, the silent film. Oh, yeah, yeah. They're, I think to me, they're probably that um, the first episode and, and these uh, these ancestral uh, flashbacks 
are probably the secret weapon of the show, are probably the strongest elements of the show that really kept me engaged with it, to be quite honest. I mean, and Maya, too. I mean, I like the overall story, and, you know, and everything. I obviously love the Kingpin and those things, but, like, those are probably what really helped me, like, kind of get into the show and, like, and really start to really enjoy it because I thought it was a unique way of doing it. Um, and it felt, it just felt very, um, it's going to be a really random thing to say, uh, but it felt almost like uh, using your comic book roots to your advantage because you're, it's like, oh, yeah, we can go a little like kind of a little like little power level here. Like, right. Like I we'll get to that in a second when we get to the last episode. But like, no, no, let's go back and go back to, our, you know, let's go back to the ancient people and really show like how far like this magical world in everything. Right. And. I'm like, yeah, like explore that. Go, don't be afraid to dive into that. Even though this is supposed to be a street level hero, use that balance word that I love to use so much. And I, I again, there's not very much in it, obviously a little bit, but the little bit they use is so perfect. And these flashback scenes are a great example of that. And I, just, I loved, I love that we're not shying away from like. Again, like a Netflix thing where it's like, we can't, we can only really talk about magic and things like that. We can't really show it or we can't really do a whole lot of this or that. I mean, I mean, Netflix did a little bit, obviously the hand had a lot more magic elements, but you know what I'm saying? Like it's, to me, this is, it was a great show example of what the power of Marvel and these characters and like how I think why the comics have always, I've loved the comic books is you're using these different elements throughout all the kinds of stories, whether it be cosmic to street level so yeah really like these aspects a lot yeah I, I think these elements were uh were just awesome and and really thought uh and said all of this stuff worked very well and i thought certainly added to the storytelling and that's one of the narrative threads that they did really keep going with all to fruition although again i feel like some of this could have been integrated better but these scenes themselves were awesome and then as we get to the present day Maya wakes to the flashing alarm, tell her someone's at the door, uh, but it's just biscuits. And then she has a shopping list for biscuits, gives them a wad of cash, which kind of begs the question of why she didn't give them the cash to cover the damage that happens to grandma's truck later in the episode. But I digress. Um, anyway, gives them the shopping list and we get uh, a great scene of Graham Greene's uh, Scully just not having really not wanting to have anything to do with uh, with his customers in his pawn shop who are just trying to appropriate, but then Biscuits helps him, at least if they're going to appropriate anyway, might as well make money off of them. Also, a casual mention there uh, by Biscuits of Madripoor. That's where, I guess, anthropology gets its, air quotes, Navajo rugs. So for the Marvel Spotlight show, we're talking Madripoor from uh, the Falcon and the Winter Soldier. But again, it's a casual mention. If you don't know what that is, I don't know as an audience member that you uh, that you really bump up against it. But uh, Scully, as played by Graham Greene, another favorite of mine in the show, everything that he's in um, is just awesome. And they, they do all of that so well. And meanwhile, we're also seeing event planning for the Choctaw Nation powwow. We're seeing Chula, Maya's grandmother, played by Tantu Cardinal, uh, Shikoba, played by Dallas Goldtooth, also the MC, as we'll see later on in, in the, the fifth episode, character Nita, played by Jana Schmiding. These are two actors that I uh, that many will recognize from Reservation Dogs. Also, of course, uh, Devery Jacobs starred in that show as Alora. I'm just going to go ahead and uh, plug the show once again. If you haven't seen Reservation Dogs, it's on. I think it's FX on Hulu. So Hulu in North America, probably Disney Plus Star internationally uh, in a lot of markets. But if you haven't seen Reservation Dogs, all of the series in its entirety is available. 
I highly, highly recommend it. One of the best shows of the past decade for sure. Um, and yeah, just outstanding. But anyway, getting back to this show with Echo, uh, we see Biscuits and Maya taking a ride. He doesn't want to miss supper, but Maya reminds him that he can have supper with his grandma all the way until he's 60. Uh, so Chula is mainly, but we're also seeing, by the way, uh, Chula being worried about Maya's influence uh, on Biscuits as she goes to see uh, as she goes to see Henry because she has found out during this event plan that event planning session that Maya was in town. And I think that that scene, though, between Chula and, and Henry, I thought was great because it shows I mean, Chula's not necessarily wrong about Maya. What she's worried about, we see Maya actively doing in this episode in terms of she's getting Biscuits involved in this very dangerous situation. So it's, it validates what Chula is, uh, is concerned about here. But then also what we're seeing is, uh, I think we're, it also just begs the question, though, of what more Chula could have done to help Maya, obviously, you know, disowning her dad was effectively disowning Maya as well as something that uh, the characters will reconcile later in the show. But regardless, you know, as th- at this point, I'm still feeling like we got to see where Maya ends up, what she's ultimately going to do and why. But for now, it's her and Biscuits on this uh, on this mission where Maya jumps onto a moving train and we see, uh, I thought, a really great action sequence. And it's nice that after we had a big fight sequence in episode one, we get a completely different version of a big action set piece here. There is no fight because if there had been one, then it would alert Kingpin's men to what Maya did here or that something was wrong, something was amiss. This had to go off with Maya being completely undetected. And so her jumping from one train to another, getting in there, not stealing something, as we'll see, leaving something behind. I thought was really cool. And then that moment to, again, incorporate these flashback sequences where Maya gets her her leg pinned between uh, in the coupling of two different train cars. In order to get out, we see these visions, right, of Loak, of Chaffa. So we're catching up to the visions that we're seeing or these moments that we're seeing in these openings of these episodes. And Maya sees her hands glow. She sees herself tapping into that power. Not that she knows or understands what it is yet, but she's able to free herself and make the jump back to uh, Biscuits and, and Billy Jack in the truck Maya is very happy with herself after succeeding in this mission, which, again, she should be. It was, it was an incredible thing that she was able to do. Maybe not the best thing that she's able to do for everybody in Tamaha, but it was still impressive nonetheless with what she was able to get done there. And I, like I said, I, I like this action sequence because it was cool, it was fun, it was compelling, but it didn't have to be a fight. It was just a nice change of pace uh, with this train sequence, Paul. So it worked. Again, I'm, I'm not seeing any anything like incredible spectacular whatever just really mm-hmm. solid fun action that is you know get part of uh, part of Maya's story here yeah i think this episode's a, another great extension of that what you're saying i think overall i and i think you're you're nailed it that the fact that this is it's a good pace right now we're getting to know the characters better the motivations better at this point um and <clears throat> the fact that it's a change of pace as far of, as far as like it's not a, a, the traditional action scene and again when you're when you're compressing all this to you know a certain amount of time, you don't want to be repetitive. So I feel like it was a good, like I said, change of pace. And yeah, I, again, like this is another solid episode. I, I, I thought overall, um, again, that balance where I all use, um, like the balance of, the, of this episode a lot. It, it, and again, when you're when you're doing when you're cooking this at forty minutes long, you know you don't it, it trim a lot of the fat off, and maybe maybe it trimmed too much fat off at times. It sounds like in some aspects. But I think this is a great example of like, I just, you know, I skimmed through this and I was like, all right, 
All right. I felt it's just like, you know, I, I will say this after two episodes, I wasn't, it, the show wasn't like grabbing me enough to be like, I have to start the next one right now. But that's part of it. Uh, part of me is also like, I want to, I mean, I hope that's not it. how you'd say it anyway, but well, well, yeah, but, <laughs> uh, but no, but like, I, but it, it didn't make me say, I can't wait for the next episode, but it definitely was just a nice, like, ah, it was just, it, 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 it wasn't like I saw just the same thing over and over again. And I, I think, and then that is something that with any show series, you have to be watch out for much less a Marvel show. No, I, I agree. And then I, I think when we see the train arrive back in New York, I mean, then we see ultimately what happened. Maya planted a bomb, which takes out most of the people there that we find out is Fisk's armory, except uh, Zane, played by Andrew Howard, and you know a couple others, one or two others we see outside. It's obviously a big move by Maya. It is an active war. You, you know, from her perspective, the war has already been going on, but obviously this is a, a big escalating moment in the conflict here, and of course begs the question of what exactly does Maya really hope to gain, whether or not she thinks she can win, and what would winning even be. Um, you know, gaining some sort of power to do what, to accomplish what, you know, that's something that uh, I don't think the show fully explores to its, uh, com- you know, or completely explores to its full potential. But nevertheless, these are the types of interesting questions that are posed by, you know, these Maya's actions here. And of course, we Henry getting the call of exactly what's happening and meeting his own team. He knows what Maya did and he wants to see her right away. But Maya is busy uh, meeting up with Scully to get a new leg, a new prosthetic leg. Maya and Henry, we see the texting back and forth. Um, Maya justifies what she's just done by saying they hit her, so she hit back. And as Henry is concerned about what's going to happen and ta- what this is going to mean for the people in Tamaha, Maya is thinking that they're not going to be able to do much because she melted their armory. I think Maya ought to know better than that, that there's uh, plenty of weapons out there for Team Fisk, even if she doesn't yet know or fully know that that Fisk is actually alive here. But I do like that we get the conversation, though, between, you know, the back and forth between Maya and Henry via text, but also Maya and the conversation with Scully as she gets the the temporary leg as he's going to continue to work on the new one. Maya clocking that Chaffa statue and being told by Henry that it was Chaffa and the ancestors who would be watching out for the family in times of need. And you never really can predict when they're when they might come calling. I love this part, getting more of the mythology, more of Maya's ancestry and the legends and Maya's connections to her ancestry, what exactly sets her apart, what aligns her with those that came before, and what uh, responsibility may come with that, which I think, you know, obviously becomes part of the conversation later in the episode. But this is all stuff that I I really like. And then there's also a great comedic moment in this where uh, we see uh, Chula and Nita as Chula is delivering the mail. Biscuit's driving by with the wrecked truck and the look on his face, the look on his grandmother's face, I thought was priceless. I was cracking up at that moment. Biscuit's is a treasure. So I was definitely at this point feeling like there better not be anything that happens to Biscuit's uh, in these episodes. And thankfully, Biscuit's uh, survives yeah. all five episodes. I was really feeling like, oh, no, if if they kill Biscuit's, I'm, I don't know if I'm going to be able to recover from yeah. that. Thankfully, they did not. But... Then Biscuits is radioing for help. He's he's trying to sell his PlayStation. This is just how good of a guy Biscuits is. Like he was just that he wrecked Grandma's truck because he was just trying to help Maya, and then and also putting himself at risk to try and help Maya. And now he's willing to sell his own PlayStation in order to fix Grandma's truck. Although again, I mean, unless he spent all the cash that Maya gave him, Maya's got nothing else. I feel like Maya probably should have chipped in to help uh, help fix the truck. Again, I digress. Um, but at least Biscuits is trying to do 
the right thing the best he can and take responsibility because ultimately he drove the truck. Um, so that part I, I like. That's also how Bonnie finds out that uh, when Bonnie chimes in, that's how Bonnie finds out that uh, Maya is in fact in town. And then we get a conversation. Henry finally catches up with Maya. Henry still doesn't want a war. And Maya shares her perspective that they're already in one. And Henry sees all this as chaos. And Maya is saying that she controls when it starts and stops. That's power, not chaos. We know as an audience who that sounds like. Henry points out. Henry points it out as well. But that just makes her sound like Wilson Fisk. So she's asking whether Henry is with her or against her. And now Henry is planning to just try and clean up the mess and ask slash tells Maya to stay, to lay low because she's forgotten that it's the people close to her who are the ones who end up getting hurt. And he leaves and we see Maya looking at that uh, broken swing set from her past as a kid with text from Bonnie coming in, wanting to know uh, why Maya hasn't let her know that she's in town. And Maya takes a shot at the swings, takes shots at the swing set as we see uh, Tuklo, who's going to be the, that's the title of the next episode, and that's a character we'll meet via silent film in the next episode. Really good scene here, I thought, between uh, Henry and Maya to close the show, because Henry's not wrong, and Maya knows it. She's fully aware that the people near her can get hurt, and it really does call into question why she's really doing these things, because she is provoking Fisk or Fisk's men at this point. She is drawing violent conflict in the direction of, of Tamaha, whether or not the war already exists, she is escalating. She is throwing gasoline on the fire in and having and you know having a trail of it leading directly to Tamaha, which is the home of not just herself, but because man, know she's mainly been in New York now, but it's also the home of all the people that she knows and loves and cares about. So that is something, perhaps in part, that's why Bonnie or uh, Maya rather is avoiding Bonnie. And maybe the other part is Maya's guilt over what she's done and the life that she's lived. We don't really know because Maya never really gets uh, the opportunity. We don't get a scene for Maya to really explain that. We don't get that conversation between Maya and Bonnie, unfortunately. So I I was really hoping that that was a thread that they were going to tie later on in episodes, but it doesn't happen. So that just becomes a thing that kind of gets set up to ultimately not really go anywhere. And I also don't think the show ever really reconciles with what Maya's done here. And here we have it, right? Maya knowing who Wilson Fisk is, although even if she believes he's dead, knows who the member of his organ the members of his organization are and what they do, what they're like, what their tactics are, and how she's endangering her family. And if Maya doesn't know that, she's being told over and over again by her uncle, by Henry, so this is something, this is behavior that, and these are choices that I think the show really needs to reconcile. And it never really does because it kind of shifts what the fight is about. Right here, we're still very much in Maya wants power. Maya wants to control things. Maya wants to be the queen pin. And then we're going to transition to the fight for her people. But I don't think they really connect that or have a smooth handoff to the story going from being about this one thing to this other thing. It's really just more abrupt as we go on throughout the show. So at this point, I was really liking it in watching the second episode and all of this stuff and, and having to kind of interpret and think about Maya's actions. But I liked it a lot better when I thought they were going to explore a lot of these ideas. But kind of like the end of the first episode introduces a lot of interesting ideas that had a lot of fertile ground for character exploration later on in the show. But we don't really see them pay a lot of these things off. So by itself, in isolation, I like this episode and I think it's very solid. 
but it also starts to highlight some of the things of of where things I, I think kind of don't stay as strong as the series progresses. Yeah, I, 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 I have a lot to say about this, but I, I want to save it for the other episodes because I think a lot of things you're saying, I totally, I, I, I see your point. And cause I like all the stuff. I like the fact that they're setting up her cause I buy into like the, without having, again, you're right. Like the, one, they don't show enough of, of, I think of the Bonnie situation for sure. And I definitely think that I mean, like literally in episode three, a conversation is promised and then it just doesn't happen. Yeah. So like there is, that is definitely a, a criticism I can totally get, get behind it. And as far as her, you know, being the queen and wanting power, I do think that one to me, I, I, yeah, you could flesh it out probably more for sure, but I buy into it a lot more because of the next couple episodes. Um, but, but again, we'll, we'll wait to get into that. So we right. move on to the next episode we can. Yeah. So moving on to episode three, uh, too close. This starts with a flashback via silent, you know, silent film design of uh, the character of Tuklo, who wanted to join the tribal police, the Light Horsemen, uh, but she was not allowed to, because even though her father saw her potential, Tuklo, of course, uh, played by Danny McCallum, she has all the potential, she has all of the skills, but she's not able to join because she's a woman. And so it's women who give life, as her father says, men who take it. Tuklo has the very strong point that to give life means nothing if I cannot protect it. But regardless, her father is not going to let her join. We do see her go off to uh, braid her. She's braiding her hair because the braids are there for being a, uh, to symbolize Choctaw warriors. And she wants to be seen as she is instead of how people think that she should be. And then, of course, we see the light horsemen are ambushed and Tuklo is the one who taps into that light, that power of Chaffa, as we uh, as we saw in the previous episode, taps into it, and she is able to save the Light Horseman from an ambush. This whole silent film sequence I thought was awesome. It all just played great. It's probably my favorite of these uh, flashback, you know, ancestral scenes in the show. Uh, it was just so well done. And also, when you just talk about being able to convey a lot of character and story in a very short amount of time, even through... You know, the the old use of uh, of silent film, uh, it worked very well. I, I thought this was a, a highlight of the episode. In the present day, however, we see Chula going to visit Scully. Uh, Scully, by the way, of course, Graham Greene again, making his moves on Chula because they are not together anymore as they were back in when we saw back in 2007. Him making those moves, I thought was a lot of fun. I thought was really, really funny. Um, and Chula, of course, was not there to rekindle any any lost romance. Uh, she was there to talk about Maya. Scully was still trying to make his moves, but then the conversation gets more serious as Chula talks about being worried about biscuits, uh, thinking and also thinks that Maya is too much like her father. And Scully points out that even though Chula lost her daughter, she doesn't have to lose her granddaughter too and suggests that Chula, instead of just maybe talking to Maya, how about Chula actually listen to Maya? This, I thought, was a great scene that really shows us not only how the situation has changed between Chula and Scully, but also giving Chula a chance to really explain her feelings while also allowing Scully uh, being there to, you know, being there to try and provide some sort of uh, counsel. And I think it just makes the story better when we're understand when we have scenes like this where we get a chance to really under deepen our understanding of these characters and their perspectives and how the stakes can go beyond the main character especially when there is conflict and as i said scully making moves was just really really funny 
So that scene, I, I thought, really gave into some of the heart of the episode. I wish there was more like this in this episode, because once we get past this scene, it really feels like the rest of this episode solely exists to have a big fight in the roller rink. That's really all that the rest of the episode is about. It, it very intentionally, without hiding it, kind of skips past more emotional scenes and emotionally grounded scenes, really have these characters have conversations with one another. We get a nice one here between Chola and Scully that gives us, th that we need to have. We need to understand Chola's perspective before ultimately we get the inevitable conversation between grandmother and granddaughter, Chula and Maya, and Maya respectively. That part I like, and I do like the action scene that that is coming up here, but this was definitely the episode where I felt like there were missed opportunities and, and where a lot of things just didn't feel complete because once we get past this scene, we're rushing, right? We get Maya you know, chan you know, having some of those visions again, but then she's just quickly taken and wakes up inside the roller rink, and then we're just kind of off and running towards this action set piece that really just skips past the other things. Like when Bonnie is also kidnapped and she's in the room with Maya, we see Maya actively avoid that conversation. Bonnie wants to have the conversation and Maya can justify that in the same practical way, the sense that the audience would. We're trying, we've been kidnapped. We're trying to escape before somebody comes back in here and kills us. So yeah, maybe it's not the best time for a heart to heart, but I don't know. Shows and movies are full of that stuff where there's some excuse for why the characters are going to have some time and they can't have a conversation or you can have the conversation after all of the action at the roller rink because we do see Maya and Bonnie have, starting that conversation, but then it just becomes a conversation that's promised for a later date that we never actually see as an audience as opposed to just taking that moment for Bonnie and Maya and I don't just say that because, well, obviously I'm a big fan of Devery Jacobs as an actress, and I think she could have crushed it in that scene, as she did all the time in Reservation Dogs, but I also feel like both characters need it. Bonnie needs it as a character, but also our main character, Maya, needs that conversation to deepen our understanding as a character of why did she avoid Bonnie all of that time, and why is she still trying to avoid Bonnie now, and really going into that territory could explore so many other things about Maya and what's going on with her, why she has this uh, quest for power to be the queen pin. A lot of these things, when we expand, when we take the opportunity to expand the character's perspective, that's what deepens our relationship and our connection to the character as an audience. And I feel like a lot of that was skipped to just have the really cool action sequence because everything else, we just know what's going to happen, right? Henry, who's also been like kidnapped off screen, as being part of this. We know Vicky is going to be in over his head when Zane and the rest of Fisk, uh, Fisk crew show up to the roller rink. We know what's going to happen there. And of course, Vicky uh, ultimately pays for his choices with his life. And the action sequence is great. I mean, I love Dragula as much as the next guy. I also love the, the laser tag fight sequence that crashes out into the roller rink, the ski ball throwing, the German suplex onto a pinball machine. We get a lot of great action beats throughout that set piece, and so it was really cool and really fun to watch, but everything around that action scene, the before and the after, just felt very short-changed. Like, the only thing this episode was interested in doing or delivering, maybe they did a lot more that we just that didn't make the cut of the episode, but all it ultimately delivers is the big action set piece with everything else really not getting the amount of time or focus that it deserved. Yeah, listen. I'm I'm gonna say this. And I know you're gonna you're gonna be disagree with me on this one. 
and I think it's fair when you disagree, but just bear with me. I I don't disagree with the fact that this is a, is a rush to get to this point, but this to me is what buy I buy into the fact that she starts to change her mind. And, and this is obviously the point of the show. It worked for me. Where as far as she she knew the war because she even says like the war will start and stop when I when I say it because you know, it's power or whatever that, that 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 something to that effect. And I think that the roller rink scene because and she has was, no power. She loses. She ultimately loses that fight and is only saved because Kingpin calls off his dogs. Right, right. And so I, I feel like for me, this kind of encap- it, it brings everything together for me to buy into the fact that that narrative kind of goes away. And again, they don't go, they don't revisit it as much. If I remember, if I remember correctly after this episode, if I'm, again, no, they I do. Remember, Cause in the fourth episode, she's, she's presented with the opportunity to be queen pin. That's right. That's right. But to me, but she's presented, but it's not her in charge. She's still under him. Right. But that's but she, but she wants her own that, that oh, I always looked at it as like, she wants to be like, her own thing, you know, kind of, kind of a thing. So, but regardless, you're right. But, but to me, this is where I buy into the fact that she's starting to kind of, she's naively bought into this idea that I'm untouchable. I can, you know, cause again, she, she held up her own as daredevil. She shot Kingpin in the face or killed Kingpin. She thought at this time, et cetera, et cetera. She, she's kind of on a high at this point. So I feel like this is like the hum, the humility she got a little bit, not for herself, but seeing her family, but that she actually saw it in her face at that moment, um, obviously. So to me, this was, um, I, I buy into that. I, I buy into all to that, that idea. So again, could they have done a better job of addressing that fully from a narrative standpoint? Absolutely. But I do feel like for me as, as the viewer, who, you know, I, I, I buy into all that. So I liked all this. I thought it was great. I do think the Bonnie stuff, was a bummer. We, 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 that was the first time they met. I'm like, that felt very, not anticlimactic, but just a little bit too on the nose. Well, and it, it was also, the way it needed to happen. Right. Cause if Maya is going to actively right. avoid Bonnie, she has to be forced into a room with Bonnie. Right. That was the sure. only way the conversation yeah. was likely to even have a chance of happening. So from that, from that perspective, I get it. Like the, the setup for them meeting works pretty much the way that I thought it would. Um, so I have no issues with that. It's just, okay, now that they have this opportunity to have this conversation. And again, I, I don't just, I don't just feel like it's a missed opportunity for not having it. And again, it doesn't have to be in the middle of when lives are still at stake. It could be in the peaceful moment afterwards, right? After everything has happened, this episode, the scene where they promise instead of, instead of promising a future conversation in that scene, just have the conversation in that scene. It doesn't have to take that long. How long is the scene between, uh, Chula and Maya, Later on in the next episode, not very long. It doesn't take, it's not like all of a sudden you need a 10 minute back and forth between Maya and Bonnie, a couple of minutes that well-written, well-performed, and you have the people there to do it, to make, have all of that work and work extraordinarily well, take that opportunity, not just because of how it can provide some resolution for what's going on between Maya and Bonnie, but again, the way these things can work, it can really expand your our understanding of Maya and what she wants and why and all of these things that are informing her character arc at this point. That's why those types of things are very useful. I kind of have a hard time believing that they didn't write that scene. You know, so I I don't even know. I'm not being critical of any specific person or group of people here. I don't know how the end result turned out to be that we don't get that sort of scene. 
it's just more of, again, uh, without placing the blame, because I, I wouldn't even know where to direct it anyway, but it feels like, that's why I do feel like there's just, there's another episode here that's missing, or there are big chunks of episodes here that are missing. Like, I believe these scenes were written, and I believe that some of this stuff was even filmed, and just for whatever reason doesn't make the final cut. I don't know why, but... I don't think these things were just never designed to be paid off. I don't think these things were introduced. I, I do think that there's just a lot that happened somewhere along the lines in the final making, the final assembly of this show. And I think that's why these things feel like they're missing. Because again, what you're not hearing me say is, oh, what's here on the screen is bad. What's here on the screen is good. It's just, it's also introducing things that don't get paid off later. That's where it's just things that are missing that I, that, that should have been there, and I suspect, at least in some of these cases, were there somewhere along the line, whether it was on the page or they actually shot it and then it didn't make the final cut. I don't I don't know if we'll ever know the answer to that, but it just feels like certain things are missing that would enhance the story uh, greatly and, and could have made, really elevated this episode. I love a great action set piece as much as the next person, but I also feel like you want to... What makes Marvel stories great is... You get the great action set piece, but you also get all the other stuff around the action set piece and what that can reveal about the characters. That stuff is usually great as well and usually gets a lot of attention and focus. And I feel like this show, with so many deep interpersonal family relationships, needs it, wants that. And I feel like it had it somewhere and just it, it got somehow lost along the way. But in any event... Um, we also get a quick scene between Maya and besides Maya and Bonnie, which is really getting more about a promise of a future conversation than an actual one. Maya and Henry, the, the main change there is now Henry is going to help Maya because really what choice does Henry have? He, Maya's done what she's done. And now the war is here in Tamaha. So of course he has to, to help Maya because that's the position that he's been put in here. Um, and then we're seeing Maya back at her, uh, grandmother's old house. And then Scully brings over her new leg with the symbol on the leg, with a piece of the leg that means, her prosthetic leg that means a, a Choctaw warrior is on the scene, talks to Maya about her grandmother. And as Maya gets a chance to express her feelings, uh, Scully talking about the whole just idea of regret and, and everybody that wishing that things were that things were different and leaves Maya with that. And of course, we'll eventually see that conversation between her, her and her grandmother uh, later on. But then we see Maya go off on a ride and then she comes back to the house to find that Wilson Fisk is there waiting for her. And that is the end of the episode. So again, really good, really fun action set piece, but just missed opportunities around that action set piece, which is why, uh, yeah, this third episode was either my least favorite or my second least favorite, depending on you know splitting hairs there with, uh, with the finale, which we'll get to. But first, we got to talk about episode four, Taloa, written by Ken Christensen. And Josh Feldman and uh, Chantel M. Wells, directed by Sidney Freeland. So we have, uh, so now we're we're flashing back to 2008. Wilson Fisk responds to a uh, very disrespectful and cruel ice cream vendor, as we saw in the trailer, beats him within an inch of his life in the alley, and we see uh, Fisk's initial instinct is to not let Maya see what's happened here, and he calls for another jacket because the one that he has is, is stained with blood. But then he turns and sees that Maya is already there, and he tells her not to be afraid. Maya has seen the whole thing, and then she approaches and gets in her, gets her own kicks in, and Fisk is impressed. So this is, as we talked about before, Wilson Fisk caring for Maya 
in his own way, which is real to him, or at least he has to believe that. Obviously, we can watch that as, a, as an audience and say that's totally warped and twisted. But from Fisk's perspective, this is what he has to believe is this real affection. But we see the difference, right? William Lopez, now, he was also conducting business in front of his, his daughter, but it wasn't violent. It wasn't obvious what he was doing, although Maya was able to pick up on enough of it, uh, arguably. But not the same as what Wilson Fisk just did. Now, it wasn't intentional, right? Fisk wasn't trying to be seen. He threw the guy into the alley. He was trying to hide the aftermath from Maya. But he doesn't really try that hard. Like Once it's unveiled to Maya, and once Maya shows her own violent instincts, her own violent potential, her own desire for vengeance against those who've wronged her, Fisk sees his own. Fisk obviously sees how he can use that. He sees how he can weaponize that, how he can use it for his own gain. And we, of course, see what that relationship really means to Wilson Fisk. Again, he will try to pretend and convince himself that that's not what it is, but that's totally what it is. But then when we see, we cut to 2021, and Fisk and Maya have this tradition of their Sunday family dinners, and Fisk telling Maya that she's ready to move from the, the theoretical to the practical. Her final lesson, though, is to know that Maya and Fisk are the only ones each of them can trust. And it's at that point that Fisk, to make sure there's no one between them, Fisk has the, because who hasn't bothered to learn ASL, has the interpreter that they've used uh, killed. So there they are having dinner in 2021. It means they weren't blipped, by the way, because this is blip time. So Maya and Fisk made it through Thanos' snap, since we are in the sacred timeline here. Uh, but also oh, great pickup on that. Wow. But, but also with this scene, what's happening here, and I love that Maya calls it out, but I don't think we we even Maya needs to call it out for herself. But us as an audience, it's already clear what's happening here. What Fisk is doing, this is like textbook isolation, manipulation. This is what he's doing, right? Oh, we're the only ones each other can trust. What is he really saying? I'm the only one you can trust. You have to come to me for everything. Like, don't consider any, don't consider anything on your own. Don't seek anyone else's input or counsel. Any decision you make can and should be guided by me because I'm the only one who knows you. I'm the only one who's looking out for you. I'm the only one that you can trust. So it is very clear, right? As we as we see what Wilson, as we can think about and consider what Wilson Fisk wants to believe. Again, this is part of the, it's the greatness of the writing. It's the greatness of the performance that we have the contradiction there. We, that we have, we have the guy who seems like he's genuinely caring, but it only seems genuine because of how badly he wants to believe it's genuine. But the behavior is still very clear in terms of what he's do, what he's actually doing with Maya and how harmful it is. Yeah. So I want to make this very clear, and I, we obviously are gonna, we're going to touch on eventually on a future episode the the canonicity of the Daredevil shows and whatnot and, and Netflix whatever. I don't want to go hard on that, <clears throat> but I do want to emphasize how much I think season three for me informs Kingpin um, in this show, uh, Sean, because I think that. If you look at that context of, you know, losing his wife, essentially, right? Like, and he's he's alone. It makes him even more desperate to hang on to something like Maya. And I think it really does help me look at this perspective of being shot in the face, doing all this manipulation. 
and again, the great setup that we have in the uh, original Hawkeye show to uh, the, the first episode, the fantastic first episode, it really, I really buy into Kingpin being just in this very vulnerable, but yet deadly place that Maya represents this aspect of him that like, he's like, he doesn't have very many people he can trust that he can love and depend on in some capacity, right? Not in the same way as his wife, obviously, but like there is this, 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 this desire to have something that's close to him that he can like consider family that he needs, but he needs her for other things as well. And I just, I love this aspect because it's, it's all over this episode that he is just, I feel like he's struggling to overcome that in, in this. And I think that reinforces the ending, which we'll get to eventually, but I think this episode is really, I, I, I think he's written great in this episode, you know, to be honest. And I think obviously portrayed masterfully by, um, you know, by uh, Vincent. D'Onofrio. Yeah, I want, I want to say, I almost said something else, but Vincent, um, I call him Vincent. I, I love, I just love his performance. And it's all over here. And the thing to me is, I think that to, when you look at that aspect of where he was in season three and into this, it's a, it's to me, it does flesh out where he is as a character. It makes tonally uh, and narrative sense where, you know, where he's going. And I feel that it's all there. And I really like where they're going with this. So I, I again, kudos to the writers. And I think the team of Marvel that they're, they, there's a lot of criticism of, of how he was portrayed in Hawkeye. I I get both disagree and agree in some regards, but either way, I feel this is a great carryover from season three to me. It's been a while since I've seen season three. Maybe I need to rewatch it, but it feels like where he's left at in season three, this is a good continuation of that. And it justifies, I think, the way he acts in this episode and in the finale as well. Yeah, I, I don't know. I guess I haven't been paying enough attention to what everybody else is saying, but yeah, I didn't know there was a whole lot of stuff about or anything about his portrayal or whatever in, in Hawkeye. I thought that worked just well and they just fine. And I mean, they, they built him up to be this big, uh, untouchable crime boss. And, and he kind of was, and like the fact that Maya was able to get to him is only because of the context of that relationship. Right. And that's the only thing that allowed her to be in that position where he would be vulnerable enough for her to get a shot off but that still didn't take him out right so i think all of that works just fine and what also works well is you know when we talk about the present day of fisk and maya and and him again not learning asl as she points out like he says this contact lens that basically signs uh, that allows him or allows maya to see in asl the translation of what fisk is saying to her and he's got his own accessories that interpret uh, her signs for him yeah, he acts like this is a gift for her, but also it's just so, as always, he doesn't bother. Other than a few a few things here and there, hasn't really bothered to learn ASL, despite having all this time that he has spent uh, with Maya. But what I, I like about the scene is, you know, the, the Sunday family dinner of Wilson Fisk trying to pr- present all this under the guise of let's reconnect and, and still be family. Uh, I don't mind that you shot me in the face. Let's go ahead and let's still be family. The way Vincent D'Onofrio plays this is he's just so good at, at coming across as caring, but not really, but also very, very menacing. It's just that complexity to the character. He's obvious. And when I say 
complexity, and I talked about this on on Fan Show Plus, available at patreon.com slash Sean Gerber and on Apple Podcasts, the moral complexity of Wills and Fisk is not real for us. We can clearly see that he's doing bad things and that he is wrong. The complexity for him is internal. It's the internal complexity of he is really good at can the reason he comes across can sort of come across as caring and genuine is because of how good he is at convincing himself that this is real. So when it's challenged, as we see later on in the episode, he doesn't necessarily respond as well to that because it it breaks this part of him that he wants to believe is real, that he is good. But then when they step inside for this family dinner, we do get this like Anchorman Baxter moment where he says he's not angry with Maya. He's actually impressed that she tried to kill him. Uh, thought that she did what she she did what she thought she had to do, just like he taught her. And Maya saying that violence was always their their language. And Fisk thought that Maya saw his actions as heroic because hey, she used to. Um, but then, as Fisk is trying to sit down for this dinner, we see Maya pour out the wine, even though it came highly recommended, as Fisk said. Um, and but Maya, of course, doesn't trust this, that maybe this is Fisk trying to poison her. And then, of course, offering cookies from Levain, which are uh, they're Maya's favorite. And that's a good choice for a favorite because cookies from Levain are uh, are awesome. But anyway, I love the moment. Like, I just love the tension in this scene. The knife drops on the floor and then Fisk just casually hands it to Maya. Um, and also, uh, you know, really portraying himself as uh, as Kingpin, the hero. Right. It's a good tense scene where you see the the threat is always present and there are also opportunities for Maya. What is she going to do? Is Maya going to make another attempt at Fisk's life? Does she feel like that could even happen now? Because she literally shot him in the face and yet here he still is standing across from her. And so I think for this scene, it works in terms of that tension, in terms of the the threat that's just present there the entire time. But then also the appeal of Fisk to Maya or what he hopes is the appeal to Maya in terms of, oh, you're happy to see that I'm alive, telling her how she feels rather than letting her express how she feels or contradicting or just shooting down when it, when she says that she doesn't feel any relief at all. She's not happy at all to see that she's alive. He de- she definitely wanted him dead. That's why she shot him in the face. No, no, no. Yeah, I saw it on your face. You're relieved. Uh, you're relieved that I'm still alive. Oh, also, by the way, Fisk isn't really there for dinner. He's there with an offer that, yes, Maya can have the empire, everything she wants. All she has to do is come back home and he'll await her answer at the Choctaw Casino before he returns to New York that weekend. And he hopes that Maya will be on the plane. But this is important to do in a story. So Maya has said that this is what she wants. Is it exactly the way that she wanted it? No, because this would still be a queen pin underneath the kingpin of Wilson Fisk. But it is still a lot, you know, in theory, more power than she's had. Although, is it really? I don't know. But it this is where there's a great opportunity, though, to really examine, does she really want this? Why did she want it in the first place? And if she's not going to want that, what does she want instead? And I feel like some of that ground is covered when she ultimately rejects this offer later on in the episode. But I still feel like there was more uh, to really uh, dive into here and explore, whether it was in this episode or the next one. And I don't think they quite got there. But I I don't want to pretend that they ignored it completely. Obviously, what they did do is you had a character who wanted something. She's presented with exactly the thing she wants or not quite exactly. And maybe. But I think that's also part of why it needed a a deeper exploration, Paul, is to that point. 
it wasn't exactly what she wanted. It wasn't exactly the way that she said she wanted it. So is he, so it still begs that question. If Fisk is removed from the picture, does Maya still want power or does she want something else? And, and why is that? And I, I always knew that ultimately she wasn't going to want to be a queen pin, whether Kingpin was present or not. But how they transition that into this other journey for her in the finale comes across as abrupt. And I don't, and as I said before, kind of like the whole uh, conversation that we never see between Bonnie and Maya, I feel like that material is there somewhere and just not explored. But uh, I'll save more of those thoughts for the finale. Just sticking with this scene, I, I thought was excellent and was doing a lot of things that it, that it should do as far as this initial confrontation of Maya finding out that, that Kingpin is alive. Yeah, I, I think this episode is, is, is one of the better ones for sure. Um, if I had to go in order, it'd probably be yeah, one. I go one and then this one. Really? I, I'd go. I, we'll get to the finale. I go finale or go one finale and then this probably. Yeah, but, no, I'll go one, four, two, and then uh, I got to decide three and five for which one ends up in last place. Yeah. Yeah. The other ones are they're all they kind of run together for me. The, the last, you know, the other episodes, but. But again, this is not a detriment. I don't think it's a, it's a, a saying a bad thing either. But for me, but yeah, I, I like this episode a lot. I thought because to me, it, it all the way he handled everything. I think showed reinforced her when you when you put side by side comparison, um, and you juxtapose uh, juxtapose uh, those the, her family in Oklahoma to her family in New York, and you see it kind of like side by side in some some respects. It definitely, to me, I buy into her change. And I, and I think that with the offer of like New York represents this emptiness and this is the reality. That's why it reinforces by the spirituality or the ancestor stuff that's going on, which I love. So I don't know. I, it's not, it doesn't go out of its way. And it probably should have, to be honest. I definitely feel like they, they, they could they could have done a better job of, of going deeper into that. But I bought into all that. I thought I was all there. And I like this episode a lot. I like, I just love seeing Kingpin in that element of he's in this very un uh, again. He's people could say like, why would you go back and try to you know, shoot in the head? And it's like I, I just feel like at this moment in his life, it it all it all tracks for me. And I think it everything tracks here for the Kingpin. I love it, and I love the fact that the way the way they, they wrote him was was perfect yeah. in this. Well, so and he loves how much he can manipulate. Like he loves exactly. this. He loves yeah, yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, she hated me enough to shoot me in the face, but watch me still control her. Like he loves that. So like I don't I don't question, you know, like, oh, is this weakness from Wilson Fisk coming back to Maya who shot him in the face? No, this is how strong he thinks he is. This is the level of his ego. And look, he's not totally wrong. He's wrong in the sense that Maya obviously doesn't come back to, you know, come back into the fold, come back into the family. But he's not wrong in the sense that look. He can show up there and Maya won't immediately try to kill him again. Like we never see her actually take a shot at Wilson Fisk again. She never actually tries to kill him again. So that's the level of strength and, you know, ego of Wilson Fisk of believing that, yeah, she took a shot at me once, but it didn't take. So, you know, but I'm I'm still here. She's not going to try again, even if she has the opportunity. And he is actually right about that. I mean, he even presents her with the opportunity later by handing her the hammer. And he knows what she's not going to do. Wilson Fisk is not really surrendering his life to Maya. He's confident, uh, completely confident that she's not going to try and kill him. But that's for later on in the episode. We get 
um, a conversation between Maya and Henry where she recaps her interaction with Fisk. And she's uh, talking about how, when she's talking about the temptation of the offer, that, you know, she's wondering if Henry just doesn't think she can do it. Henry knows that Maya can be the queen pin. That's what scares him. He says he's 45 and alone because everyone he cared about was taken by Fisk. And he talks about trying to get out after William died, but how Fisk threatened to kill him. And that's how Henry ended up uh, just being there and part of Fisk's organization in Tomahawk, Oklahoma. But this gives Maya an opportunity to call him out for leaving her alone when she was not okay. Um, Of course, she had lost her father. She was all alone there. And Henry apologizes for that. And I love scenes like this. I love scenes where these characters get a chance to really express how they feel. This is the kind of thing that I felt like episode three was really missing. Um, But at least we get a a couple of scenes like this and an even stronger one later on in this episode. That stuff I I really liked. And then uh, uh, we continue to see preparations being underway for the Choctaw Nation powwow, which will come up, of course, in the finale. And then as uh, but also as that's happening, Chula is having visions. We see Maya um, is having visions. And so Henry takes Maya to Chula and we finally get this conversation between grandmother and granddaughter and I love the way that it starts off and the way that Maya rejects it. I love that grandma offers granddaughter snacks and something to drink, as would be kind of the, the standard beginning of some visit of, uh, you know, granddaughter coming over to visit grandmother. And Maya just rejects that. Nope, we are not going to pretend that this is normal. And Maya absolutely deserves the opportunity to say that. And I'm glad that she did. She's there for a reason. Let's go ahead and have that. She's Maya's not there because she chose to be there because she felt like having this conversation with her grandmother. She's there for it. She was brought there by Henry. She didn't choose to be there, but there is stuff that maybe her grandmother could help her with. So let's have that conversation. And Maya describes her visions, which is uh, what similar visions that Chula has had that started when she gave birth to Taloa, Maya's mother. And so we get that story of the the life or death situation that Chula experienced as she was giving birth to Taloa and how the ancestors knew when they were needed. And this was a life or death situation. The ancestors were there to help Chula and Taloa through it. And Taloa had a gift that she was a healer. And then Chula explains more of what she did in, in terms of the past 20 years with Maya or her being absent from Maya's life this whole time. Chula describes the unique connection between a mother and her child that is unbreakable. And then when Taloa died, Chula's heart was completely shattered. And all Chula wanted at that point was to die herself. And Maya says that Chula disowned her. And Chula tries to say that she only meant to disown Ma- uh, Maya's father because she, because she, Chula, was so angry. And then Maya says it was her father who said that it was always Chula who destroyed the family and wanted nothing to do with them. And Chula said how describes how she couldn't bear to be around Maya because Maya is too much like her mother. And Chula thinks now, though, generations are reaching out to them at a time when they need them most. And Maya then says, as hopeful as that may be and as uplifting as that could be in theory, Maya is not ready for that at this moment. Maya is saying that, look, at the end of the day, she was a child and she needed her grandmother and Chula chose herself. And I, I love this back and forth. I love this conversation. Everything Chula says is true and valid from her perspective up until the point that, yes, as Maya correctly calls out, Chula was still the adult here. Maya was the child. And it's not, it's not sufficient to say that or valid to really say, well, all I tried to do, all I wanted to do was disown 
your father. Well, if you disown the father of a small child, then you're effectively going to, that the, a father that that child is still going to go off and live with, you are effectively disowning that small child. She did effectively, whether she intended to or not, she, do, she had to know that effectively she was disowning her granddaughter. And she might have had her reasons for that, but Maya's not wrong to feel like her grandmother should have set that aside to still be there for her. Completely valid perspective from, uh, from Maya there. And what I love about this conversation is it really does just feel like the first of many conversations that need to happen between these two characters in order to heal, in order to resolve the conflict between them. We're talking about a 20-year rift, so it's not the thing that one conversation can fix, and they don't really pretend that it does yet. You know, maybe they do that in the finale but when everything seems to be okay at the end. But for right now, in this moment, in this episode, and Maya walking out, uh, still angry and still uh, obviously harboring these feelings. That's right. It doesn't all be, it, it's not all going to be resolved here and now. This is just the really, really difficult first step, you know, the foundation of maybe repairing that relationship. And and that's all that this conversation is treated as, and it's done very well. Uh, it's great writing and outstanding acting by Tantu Cardinal as Chula and Alako Cox as Maya. Uh, they're really great working with one another here in a, in a very difficult and challenging scene. Yeah, I love this scene. This was this was really awesome because it felt very real. Like this is like these are these are these are unfortunate real conversations in some respects um, that happen in some ways, right? Not obviously the same exact, but uh, of, of those lines of a perspective of of someone making a hard line. Um, fortunately, it's kind of one of those, I don't want to say I relate to this completely, but like, and adults failing kids sometimes, like even, even well-intended good adults, like I don't question whether or not Chula is, is a good person and that she does good things for people, Mm -hmm. but she, she missed here and we understand why it's perfectly understandable how she wasn't her best self, making her best choices. And you know, both things can be true that Chula could be hurting and yet also failed to be there for her granddaughter. Exactly. And again, I, I relate, I cannot relate to this personally, but I've been involved in a situation that's kind of not similar, but in, in the same kind of vein and it sucks. And these are real emotions. And it was as someone who has experienced that from the outside, but close to it, it was one of those things where I really, I appreciated the fact that these are real conversations and the fact that Maya just calls her out and says, you, you abandoned us. You abandoned me Yep, straight up. And that is the truth. And I think, uh, you know, she needed to hear, she obviously yeah. had to hear that and, and accept that she had to accept the fact that even though she, her feelings, um, were, were valid or, you know, still valid doesn't mean they make up for the wrong. And I think that is ultimately really important here. And I think that there's the whole, the whole idea of, um, letting go and uh, like uh, identifying the issue that, which we see obviously in the next episode as a, as a, as a, uh, as a theme here is really, really cool. And I think that when you talk about like things were abandoned and, and, and everything like that, I totally agree and, and kind of come up out of nowhere. These are one of the things I would say that like, I appreciated the fact that we, we knew yep. this was going to be coming, but this was a good, like out of nowhere conversation and theme of, of kind of moving on and, and like accept accepting the past and moving on from yeah. the past. I, I think that 
again, I mean, I, I guess you could say that's always been there, but it 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 felt this was so out of uh, out of nowhere conversation that I would it was really cool, and, and I think it's it's only propped up more when you look at the next episode with her and Kingpin. But yeah, I love this conversation. I thought it was a it was a well written, real conversation. Yeah, I, I thought they did an outstanding job with it, and we see the toll that it takes on the characters. Right, we see Chula going downstairs, you know, on the suit that we'll see more of in the finale that she's working on. We see, uh, we see her crying. We see Bonnie crying in the kitchen, uh, waiting for that conversation that Maya promised her that we will never see in this show. Uh, Maya is, is crying. Like we see the emotional toll that all of these, uh, you know, fractured relationships are, are having on the people who are part of them, which again, just is why we should get more of this stuff. But at least as far as Maya and her grandmother, like that stuff, I, I think they were, they honored that with with the scene that we just talked about here. And uh, but there's also a great job of, you know, putting a button on all this stuff of of what's going on with Biscuit still working on the the truck and you know the mechanic that he's with, you know, gives the the Lion King everything the light touches line, which was funny. But more importantly, from Biscuit's talking about a lesson from his grandmother that nothing is too broke to fix. If you want it bad enough, don't throw it away, which is just very much on the nose, but kind of necessary to really say like, that's where they're at with these relationships is yeah, these things are broken, but not too broke to fix. And if these characters want it bad enough, they can't throw these relationships away uh, and they won't, which is, uh, which is wonderful. So yes, a lot of difficult conversations to go through and be had. Um, but what's coming on the other side could certainly be much, much better for these characters. And so, yeah, it's, it's that family that's not too broken to, that's not too broken to fix and, and shouldn't be thrown away. So we see, again, Chula working on something for Maya. Maya goes to the Choctaw Casino. She has a gun drawn on Fisk. And then he goes uh, full on with the uh, trying to appeal to her. I can't remember a time when I haven't loved you like a daughter. Obviously, that comes in the context and, you know, the heavy qualification of loving her as Fisk would love a daughter, which is maybe not the way um, others might want to love someone like a daughter uh, in terms of uh, asking them on a regular basis to be in dangerous situations, uh, endangering themselves, but then also hurting other people. Uh, not really the best way to love someone as if they were your own child, but that is Fisk in, in his own warped sense of how things work and how he can rationalize them. But Maya does a great job, and it's outstanding job by Alakwa Cox, again, in this scene, describing how her memories are a lie, a child's fantasy that turned a monster into a hero. I love that line. Beautifully written. Uh, great performance by Alakwa Cox. It's so spot on of what this entire thing was, this dynamic between Maya and Wilson Fisk. And Fisk tries to say that Maya knew what was happening. She knew what she was a part of the whole way. And with all the people that she killed for him, did she feel bad for them? Did she mourn for them? So really, who's the monster here? If... Wilson Fisk is sending Maya to kill all those people and she knows what she's doing and she does it anyway. Is Fisk the monster or is Maya? Fisk is still for sure a monster, but Maya also is, uh, you know, is calling BS on that as she totally should. Because look, yes, Maya eventually was an adult as she was doing these things and continuing to do these things, but she was manipulated and groomed to do these things and be this person from childhood with Fisk having isolated her and, you know, lied that he was the only one that she could trust. And she even calls him out, as I said before, for the contacts that he only got them because he didn't care to learn to sign. And Fisk then tries to, and and this is the manipulation of Wilson Fisk. Even when he's reeling here, he still has a move, right? He still has a counter that, okay, if he can't, 
if you can't break Maya by saying that she's a monster and getting her to believe it, if she's still calling him out for that, now let me lean into, let me go ahead and lean into the, the same direction as these challenges from her. Okay, fine. I failed you. I failed you like my father failed me and then takes out the hammer that he used to kill his father, as some of us saw and, and may recall from Daredevil, um, saying hey, how he killed his father to be free to move forward in his life. So now Maya gets the same opportunity. Free yourself, but instead of striking Fisk with the hammer, she puts it down, and he tells her to come home in the morning, and that's the end of our scene. So we still don't have this firm answer from Maya, and that's where, again, I want to give the show some credit of her, you know, as she's exploring these things and talking about, you know, Fisk isolated her, that Fisk was the one, obviously Fisk raised her to be this way, raised her to want these things and think this way. So this is the break. This is, in many ways, I think the break from, you know, wanting to be the queen pin. But I, I think she still needs to put, she still needs to reconcile it in the way of, not only does she not want to be the queen pin on his terms, she doesn't want to be the queen pin on any terms. And I think that could be, there could be more clarity on that. You could say, and if somebody argues that it's done well enough here, I'm not going to argue too passionately the opposite, but I also feel like that's something to put a a finer point on maybe in the finale. But as far as what they do here and now in this scene, I think they do it very well. Maya gets to spell out everything and she's right. She's correct. She's figured it all out. She's probably known so much of this for so long now, but now she has the the opportunity to finally say it, uh, to finally say it. And her acknowledging this to Wilson Fisk is very important for her to really kind of finalize and cement and cement her feelings on what this relationship is, what this relationship has been in order for her to have an opportunity to move on from it. So this was a really great scene. Obviously, the next morning, you know, Maya, after examining her memories, rides out of Tamaha, leaving Wilson Fisk to learn that she's not coming. And we see him, you know, throwing one of his classic Wilson Fisk tantrums. But this scene at the Choctaw Casino in the hotel room, I thought was really great. And that's part of why I think this episode is so strong. And, you know, not, maybe not, I don't like it quite as much as the first, but it really just puts these characters in rooms talking to each other, saying the things they need to say to one another. And it really does a lot, not only for them as characters and their journeys, but it does a lot for us uh, as an audience to really uh, be in tune with with where these characters are, are at morally, ethically, emotionally at this point in their lives. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, you know, to wrap up my my uh, thoughts on this episode, I think this was a great episode, not the most action packed episode, but it to me, one of the stronger ones, just because of how, like you said, great conversations with people, a lot of earned conversations and, you know, what you've been building up for. And again, like I like I like the storylines that they, they created in this. And I think that to see again, you, you have like these two different families that she's kind of like choosing behind and they both are imperfect. And that's what kind of makes it interesting to me is that obviously one's like pure evil. I mean, let's let's be real. But like you get that you can understand, at least, at least for me, when I watch it, I can understand her being in this very weird, dark place because there's not like this loving, like, oh, we, we love you. And there's, there's all rainbows and unicorns over here. Like, no, there's, there's darkness over here too. And there's legitimate hurt, like pain and, and understanding why you would not trust someone, you know? So I think they did a great job of showing that, but also like why obviously one, you know, f- through forgiveness, 
or through forgiveness, but slash, you know, moving on and closing that chapter and moving on is so pivotal, which we'll get in the next uh, episode, obviously. Yes, we will. And that last episode being Echo, uh, season one, episode five, Maya, and written by Amy Rardin and Stephen Paul Judd and Ellen Morton and Chantel M. Wells, directed by Sydney Freeland. And I thought this episode had a couple of really great scenes, but overall was not a great episode. And I don't think it ended up being a great finale for this show either. I think it lacks sufficient resolution for characters and their relationships with one another, including Maya. And I got to say, this episode, I wish there was an entire sixth episode for this series because I think it needed it. But I also feel like if nothing else why is this episode only 37 minutes? There's There could be more here. I mean, I think that when you look at the... And I know the runtimes aren't always consistent on the Disney Plus shows, and that's fine. And But you know, the runtime, when you just look at it, it's just a number. It comes down to what they do with the time they have. And I feel like this series needed more time. I mean, 50 minutes or whatever for the first episode. And then we just kind of see the runtimes dropping till we get to 37 for the finale. And I feel like this finale is really interested in about two scenes, and then it just kind of moves on. Uh, and then just kind of has filler, just kind of like the third episode where it really it really wants to have the the action set piece in the roller rink, but isn't really interested in doing much else. Or at least the final delivery makes it seem that way, even if maybe that wasn't the original intention when they set out to tell this story. But, you know, the opening scene is a flashback where with young Maya firing a, a slingshot at a woodpecker strikes the bird, and then Maya takes the bird to her mother, lying about what actually happened to it, but Taloa knows that and tells uh, her daughter that they don't harm living things and then tells the story of the Biskinik, the Choctaw legend, that they would tell the bird what to say and it would tap out messages on the trees, even warn when enemies approached. And Maya wants to know if they can fix it, and they can because Taloa really, truly, literally is a healer, as Chula described. And then we get to the accident and so as far as this opening sequence, Paul, I thought this was a really nice interaction between Maya and her mother, because obviously we don't get a lot of that uh, throughout the show, because obviously it starts with the flashback of her mother dying. But giving this scene and this interaction between Maya and her mother was great. And I think it also establishes, of course, not only her mother's power to heal, but Maya's knowledge of it. And maybe this is something that Maya forgot because she was so young, but also because of the trauma around the loss of her mother. But it also, of course, unveils if if Taloa can do this, perhaps her daughter can as well. So it unveils Maya's own potential. I do wish, though, that these sort of seeds were planted earlier in the series. I agree with that. I, I don't like the idea of, you know, mentioning the healing powers, but then showing, you know, showing the literal manifestation of it moments before, you know, in the same episode that Maya is going to use it. It just makes it feel a little too convenient. And I know they've been doing other things, right? Obviously, we've seen the the flashbacks to Maya's ancestors and some powers there. But now we're really adding a, a little bit, something much more specific to what those powers are and how they work and how they can be used. And I feel like that needed a boost somewhere else in the series prior to the finale. But I, I don't want to harp on that too much because it's not one of my bigger issues with the episode. And it, it really doesn't take away from... I, I maybe I said there were two scenes that I liked in this episode. It's more than two because I'll add this one as a third because this isn't even one of the couple that I was going to reference here. Um, but this one was good, and and I think we really we needed it because obviously we don't get to spend much time with Maya and her mother at that certainly at, at that young age for Maya. Yeah, 
I, I'm gonna, I gotta tell you here. I again, I I can admit full biased uh, thoughts and opinions on certain things, and you know, anytime right now you show um, a little girl in, in an episode that's kind of evident and kind of you know in, the, in this context here, I'm immediately just like zoned in and like get emotional because. You know, she's at this point, she's just a few years older than Lou. And it's like, I just, it hits me. Like, it, it just, it sucks. It just, I, you know, not not because like I can't like it or, you know, it sucks to have emotion, but it's just like, it's hard for me to detach myself from this a little bit because I'm like, oh, like for whatever reason, it, it me, this opening scene really got me. I don't know what it is, but it got me. I think you and, just described what it is, but it's fine. It's a good scene. Like, I don't think you have to hold that, you know, hold that against yourself. Like, well, well, no, but, but like, it kind of what I'm saying is it sets up the entire episode for me because sure. because I feel that I 100 percent agree. I wish this was in sooner because it's a, it's a great scene. And I think I, I think it's a great point. Like, this is a great scene. I don't want to take anything away from it. I definitely feel they should have shown us this a little bit sooner to to really, you know, maybe maybe do a little bit of a, uh, um, a a hint of this end, and then you could just like play it out all the way through in this. Um, but I mean, obviously, we we understand like where they're well, going with this. For all but, we know, it was written into a previous episode and then just sure. got ended up here in the edit. Like, right, right, you know, the next scene makes me kind of wonder about that because we get uh, an intera- another interaction between Chula and, uh, Chula and Scully where she goes back to the pawn shop. She's there for business, even though was, Scully is trying very hard to flirt still. Um, <laughs> she's there to buy back her old sewing machine that Scully says he can she can have it for free as long as she'll come back every once in a while. So Scully's got his moves and he's trying his best. And it seems like maybe there's hope for that romance to to find it for them to find their way back to each other. But it was interesting with this scene, though, because I'm like, she's already been working on the costume, so maybe she didn't need the sewing machine up until this point and needs it for the finishing touches. But it almost seems to me like this scene was also lifted from earlier in the series and just kind of dropped in here. So it wouldn't surprise me if there that's are a great point. That's a great it, point. It would not surprise me if there were others, other examples of that. And that's again, it, it doesn't really bug me, but it, it just feeds into that sense of I, I do feel like to some extent this series was kind of cobbled together uh, at the end. And that's why certain things just kind of feel like they were missing or just kind of mysteriously dropped from the storyline. But then we see Chula and Fisk with Fisk. act. I love the line where Fisk is talking about how he tried or how he tries to learn ASL for his niece. Like when that's literally what Maya just called him out for not doing. Um, but again, Fisk wants to convince himself and and anyone who will believe him that he's a good, well-intended guy um, but then he's trying, they're trying to bond with Chula, pretending he's there for the powwow. And he gets Chula to start talking about her granddaughter, who of course is Maya. And this scene I, I thought worked well enough for what it is. It's, it's just all about the threat of Wilson Fisk and you can feel it the entire time. And it just makes his attempts to bond with Chula. It makes him that much more obvious, but it also makes it that much more devious. And, and I also think that, um, you know, going back to that question of who's the monster, I, I definitely think it answers uh, it answers who the monster is with now Fisk very clearly going after Maya's grandmother. But um, that's uh, and that's all that scene really needs to accomplish. And I, and I think it does just fine uh, from that perspective. But then we're catching up with Maya. Uh, she's filling up at a, at a Roxxon station. And then we're also checking in at the the 
Choctaw Nation powwow where Biscuits is working parking and then completely disrespected and blown off by Zane uh, over where Zane was going to park the Winnebago. So we know trouble's coming into the Choctaw Nation powwow. I I just can't stand for anyone disrespecting Biscuits, but at least Biscuits gets his revenge via monster truck later on in the episode. But back to Maya eating alone and she gets the message that the enemy is approaching. She sees uh, the woodpecker tapping its message but also, if that weren't enough, she's getting texts from Biscuits that Chula and Bonnie are missing. So back to Tamaha she goes. And this is just an example of what doesn't work for me at all in this finale. And you can go you can go back to her writing out of town at the end of the fourth episode. This just doesn't really make sense to me, Paul. It doesn't make sense to me as a character choice. I think it betrays uh, who Maya is or who they want me to, to think she is, certainly by the end of the episode. I think it betrays what I know that Maya knows as a viewer. I know that Maya knows better than this for I don't like it's obvious what's going to happen. Maya, if her motivation for leaving town, as she tries to say later, is uh, to put distance, put distance between herself and her family, because all she does is, is bring them harm. It's too late for that. And it's obviously too late for that. Fisk is in town. His men are in town. She knows how he's going to respond when she rejects him, when she refuses to go back and, and be part of his family again, she knows he's going to attack her loved ones. She would have to know that. She knows how he works. And if she didn't already know that, she's been warned repeatedly of that by Henry throughout this episode. I know that she knows better. I know that she wouldn't do this because she would know that her family is already in danger. She's not sparing them from danger by leaving, she's actually just removing herself and removing her ability to defend them. I just don't believe that this is a choice that she would make. And that's why it's, and I don't know that anybody really believes it because that's why it, it it's done away with so quickly. She heads out to the Roxanne fill station. She's having a bite. And then she's back to Tamaha where she always needed to be anyway. I just don't buy her leaving. I, I don't really know what they're doing here, but they could have easily replaced this with some other scene for Maya having maybe even a conversation with somebody that she should have at some point that needed to be replaced. I just don't buy this and I don't see it as Maya protecting anyone. I see it as Maya abandoning her own responsibilities and her own accountability for this entire situation. And I don't think that's the intention. It'd be one thing if they were actually trying to have Maya answer for that, but they don't. So if you're not going to call her out of this behavior and say that this was this wrong thing that she obviously did, and she obviously knew she was wrong to do. I don't think that's the intention here. It really just ends up looking like a careless choice that this character absolutely wouldn't make. You know, when you put it like that, it makes a lot of sense. I ain't gonna lie. She knows better, and I know she knows better, period. But listen, when I watched the show, didn't even cross my mind, to be quite honest with you. And, and, And that's where it's 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 hard sometimes when when you're wrapped up in characters you kind of just again i think this show for better or for worse takes a, a, a liberties with that and it and a lot of times it worked for me and i think when you put it like you break it down like that i'm like man you're right like you're 100 right but in the moment of the show in a vacuum when i and again you can't look at things in a vacuum especially when it's a, you know a series like this yeah i mean but there's four episodes can't. that told like you, especially coming on the heels of the fourth episode, right? She right. just called out Wilson Fisk for everything, who he is, how he is, what he does. Right. 
Right. So you can't you can't show me that she's had this full complete realization of who and what Wilson Fisk is, and then act like leaving was the solution. It listen, I think that all makes sense, but the woodpecker shows up, and but she didn't even I, need the woodpecker to warn I her know, of danger. I and know, I know the woodpecker is placed throughout the series, but like, and and also. She doesn't even take that sign. She goes off of the text messages anyway. So you introduce <laughs> what this is and she doesn't like she it's not like she sees that tapping and she's like, oh, I better go back. It's the text message from Biscuits that Bonnie and Chula are missing. Like that's the thing that ultimately tells her to go back. But she shouldn't have needed any of that. Not the bird, not the text messages. She shouldn't have needed any of that because she plainly knew and has been told over and over right. again that this is what will happen. So like. That's all fair. leaving her family 100%. there in Tamaha where Fisk is, where his men are with Fisk being, you know, freshly angry at Maya um, and the way that Fisk takes out his anger on the people that you love, not necessarily on, you know, gets to you by going through the people you love. She knows all of that. So she's not going to leave her people there defenseless. I just don't buy it for a second. And you know what? That that all makes a lot of sense in the moment of the show. I, I didn't look at it at that same time and I'll probably won't I'll probably look at it differently when I watch it next maybe but in the end like I it didn't bother me as much as you for sure and, and I'm not saying you're you're 100% spot on too I totally get it but for whatever reason I I bought into it and I was fine with it so yeah. but again I it wasn't like I here's the thing they're trying to build tension I get it like that's the whole point yeah, I get, it's I, not you're, you, it, you're right. Build it on it. Build it honestly is what I will yeah, is what I, I will I, say. I would that. agree. No, no, I agree. I but hook, hook, line, and sinker. I bought it. So and not saying I it was, that's a good good point either. But well, maybe I, I, I maybe I've uh, ruined it for you on on your second. You the next time you, you watch it. But yeah, anyway, thanks um, a lot. But then we do get to from there. We do actually get to a, a genuinely great scene where you know, Maya is going to. She's there looking for her family at her grandmother's house and uh, her grandmother is not there but who is there it's her mother Taloa who's there you know reaching out to her she takes Maya back to the scene of the accident to tell her that she's not alone that for Maya her mother her ancestors everyone who came before they are a part of her because they echo through her and then her mom lands on the name echo for Maya and I love that as the source of the name Echo, Ugh. how we shift from Maya to Echo. That is beautiful. That is extraordinary. Good. Wonderful touch. Absolutely love that. And then Taloa being the healer, not just physically healing, but emotionally healing, healing that pain for Maya, saying that it's time to go, time for it to go away. And Maya just doesn't know how to move on from that. But Taloa says that it's she's there and the rest of Maya's ancestors are there to help her. And Maya came from a very long line of special women all the way from Chaffa herself they were the protectors of their people who fought for their family, and now it's Maya's turn to fight for them. Maya, though, and this is again where I, Maya still says that she should run uh, because she only brings danger. It's so obviously too late for that, and Maya should know it. Um, her mother then tells her to stay and fight, and Maya's got gifts, strategy from Loa, cunning from Tuklo, ferocity from Chafa, love from her mother Taloa, and, and all of that is infused in the suit that Chula has been making and then uh, we we get the description that every seam on the suit shows that you're a part of us and we're a part of you. I love you always. And then we get this beautiful visual tour of the suit, which looks great. And, you know, look, this is a beautiful scene between Maya and her mother. The source of the name, as I said, 
outstanding. The acting is by Katarina Zervogel and Alakwa Cox, just stellar. I love this scene so much on that. To, I mean, Maya's line about, you know, why she should leave, I, I don't like and I don't accept that she would say it because she knows better. And we all know that she, we should all know that she knows better. But the rest of it is outstanding. I just think that as great as this scene is, it deserved more setup. I, I think it there needed to be more exploration in advance of the way that Maya's pain has, you know, connected to her behavior and her choices. Because I think a lot of it has been, it's about Wilson Fisk and his manipulation. It's not as much about, it hasn't always been as much about Maya and her own feelings and how some, I mean, obviously we know how Wilson Fisk preyed upon them, but coming from Maya, it's not all Wilson Fisk. Maya still has made choices here. And so connecting some of that I think would have been in a stronger way, would have benefited a scene like this. Um, and we really haven't seen as much about Maya even exploring and expressing the feelings about her mother's death. And I know that we as an audience can naturally assume that child losing their mother is bad and hurtful and traumatic. Yes, we can go ahead and assume those things. But rather than relying on the basic assumption and our basic idea of children losing their parents and how hard that is, because we've and some of them, of course, have gone through the tragic experience of having gone through that themselves or have seen it in stories forever. Rather than just rely on that, tell the story about what makes it unique from Maya's perspective and what her experience actually is and how this pain might have been playing a role in her ignoring Bonnie for 20 years. Rather than us just assuming, and I'm not saying that's the reason why she ignored Bonnie for all that time, but we can only make assumptions and interpret because they don't actually go over that. And I'm just using Bonnie as one example of that um, because obviously there's no specific mention of Bonnie here so I'm not saying it had to be that had to be addressed here it could it should have been at least addressed elsewhere but Bonnie just being an example of all these other things that Maya has done the fact that she has hurt people um, even after her mother had taught her that lesson of not harming people yes a lot of that is Fisk but some of that's still Maya and her pain and her anger show that talk about that have that come out and be explored in some of these scenes I really think that that would have benefited a scene like this and would have made it that much more impactful. Like the fact that this scene is so good and, and resonates so strongly without, I think, adequate buildup to it is a testament to the scene itself and the, the actors who are really making it come alive. But I also think that, you know, again, part of setting up the idea of I the idea of Maya fighting for and protecting her people. I love that idea. It's powerful. It's beautiful. Like, I, I love all of that. And that is definitely part of this scene. But I don't think, I think it's contradicted by a lot of Maya's behavior before this. Maya hasn't really even thought about or explored the idea of fighting for her people. Like, that hasn't really come up and, and been a thing uh, through the previous four episodes. And even right now, Maya wanting to run away as a means of protecting her people, as I said, it doesn't make sense. It's clearly too late for that. They're already in danger and her leaving won't change that. She should know that. I know that she knows better and she doesn't need, um, you know, a warning uh, from the woodpecker. She doesn't need that danger is coming. She doesn't need a message from Biscuits. She lured the danger there to Tamaha, which doesn't make her responsible for the actions of Wilson Fisk. Fisk is still the monster here. But Maya has known the entire time and it's been and she has been made aware of exactly what she's been risking by launching this attack on Fisk and his empire, whether she thought Fisk was dead or not. 
The consequences were still going to be severe. The risks were severe. And she also knew, you know, after she's decided to leave town and is still in this moment talking about how she should leave, she knows that Fisk is alive. She knows she just rejected him. And she's trying to ride out of town as if that's the right move. But she absolutely knows that it's not. The only way I can really kind of give this scene, this part of the scene, everything else in the scene besides Maya still acting like or thinking she should leave, which I don't think is honest for the character in that moment, by the way. The only thing I can say to kind of give it a, uh, the only thing I can really say to kind of give it a, a little bit of the benefit of the doubt is I can go ahead and say that this is a crisis of confidence and, and of conscience for conscience for Maya. That deep down somewhere, she knows what she has to do, and she's obviously going to do it. We're about to see it. This is just her process of talking through it and getting the feedback and the love that she needs. I can go ahead and, and try to make it work from that perspective. I don't think that solves all of my problems with this uh, with this part of Maya's perspective in, uh, in the scene and, and in this episode. But regardless, this is still an excellent scene, and I think it could have used a better buildup. And I think it could have been given more space uh, also because I think this scene needed to really breathe a little bit and Maya needed to have more of an opportunity to kind of take in this moment in the episode before instead of just immediately going towards the 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 finale action set piece at the Choctaw Nation powwow. It needed a little more time to breathe. But at least what we got here in this moment, this scene, it doesn't exist in a vacuum, but if it did it would still be uh, incredibly special because of every because of the performances of these actors and as i said before some some great writing it it's by itself it's great i think it would work better with a little more space instead of being kind of the the pep talk headed into the big action finale but it is still a great scene and i love it i absolutely adore the scene a lot on so many different levels um i mean I, again i think you could have having her mom there was it's like it's on the nose but it's so effective it's ridiculous i i got emotional watching this and you know this the, the echo name is just chef's kiss god it's so perfect i love this i love what they did here with this uh with the name and and the the, the Looking at the character differently, so much more interesting than the comic version, in my opinion. It's like to me, it's not even close. Um, I love what they did here. Love, love, love what they did here. And I, just to me, it, it felt like a. It just felt very. I won't say natural, but I, I just loved it. I like again. You can criticizing. We can. We can. We can. We can pick it to death. But in the end, for me. Um, like the suit thing again, it was, it was, it looks cool. I, I love the idea of it. It was, that felt a little out of nowhere, but again, I, I'm not because of the, of the powwow going on. I felt like, well, yeah, it could be like, you know, it's, it's again, it's Chola saying, you know, I accept you as one of my own. And I like that. I, I again, your visual, visual representation, also giving her a costume, which, you know, me and my costumes, give me costumes all day, baby. Um, so, uh, anyway, I, I love the scene. Thought it was great. Um, yeah, great performances. I love it's all sign language, you know, I, I love that. And it's, you see, it's all, it's super emotional still. Love it. Love it. Love it. It's, uh, to me, this is, this whole scene's chef's kiss. Love it. Yeah, it is. Uh, it's a fantastic scene. I love it. Again, the, my my only issues with it come from the broader context of the show, not within the you know specifics of uh, of the scene itself. So 
Then we, uh, then we, it is time for the Choctaw Nation powwow. As the powwow begins, we see trouble is starting as well. Everyone's keeping an eye out for Maya. And uh, meanwhile, we're also seeing, you know, Maya is, she's there. She's in tune with the vibrations of the footsteps, the dance steps, the drums. I, I really liked that moment as she's also trying to gauge the level of danger and, and where everything is at. I kind of wish the Choctaw Nation powwow again. I think it just needed more time to breathe. Like I think going to the Choctaw Nation powwow and showcasing a lot of that, it looked great and I loved it and I wanted, but I wanted to see more of it and I feel like it could have been utilized even better. It, it didn't just need to immediately be the you know climactic action set piece because it's not even really much of an action set piece. This is not a big action sequence. They tease threats, but then they're all quickly resolved, right? Biscuits in the monster truck takes out a couple vanfuls of Fisk's men. Henry shoots down Zane rather easily. And then, of course, the RPG just goes up harmlessly into the sky and is mistaken for fireworks. Like, that's it. And and that's fine. Like, I don't want to see a, you know, I don't want to see some extreme violence at the Choctaw Nation powwow. I'm, I'm glad we don't see that. What I'm saying is missing here is not more action. What's missing here is I feel like before we immediately launch into the danger, I feel like there could be, you know, other scenes and, and and Maya being able to kind of contemplate the conversation she just had. I, I get that the clock is ticking and that there is danger here. But as I said before with episode three, there's always ways to to pause the clock. There's always ways to call time out and create opportunities for characters to kind of uh, allow things to emotionally resonate before you go into the big action payoff. There are always ways to do that. There's always space and time that you can find that you can carve out for that so I don't just say it. I don't just accept it as the clock's ticking. We got to move here. There's always ways to space things out. But anyway, moving on, as I said, all the danger around the Choctaw Nation powwow is very quickly resolved. So it's really more about the confrontation between Maya and Fisk. And of course, Maya is surrounded by Fisk's men. We see Bonnie and Chula, of course, as we already presumed, taken hostage. And then as Maya is going through this and they initially have this conversation of Maya, Fisk having offered Maya everything, how could she betray him? Who betrayed who first? And then uh, Fisk is saying she brought all this uh, on herself, even admits to, because before it was just something that Maya knew because Barton told her, but now Fisk plainly admits in front of everyone that he was the one who was ultimately responsible for her father dying, that effectively... You know, he didn't wield the sword, but effectively he is the one who killed William. And Maya also gets her opportunity to uh, gets her opportunity to say what she is and what she isn't to Fisk. That she's talking, referring to her family. That they're in her blood, they're in her heart. She's a part of them, and uh, they're a part of her. And she and Maya is their legacy, not Wilson Fisk's. She is their family, not his. And I love that how Maya is saying this. We we cut to. Chula, and it's a great job by Tantu Cardinal, not given a lot of space there, but make in the second that she has there makes it clear that she knows it's very she knows the conversation that Maya had and who with whom Maya had that conversation. That part I thought was great. And then when we get the visual, it's it's the fight and Maya initially being struck down and then Echo rises with the power of all her ancestors behind her and the way the powers manifest that this isn't Echo like more in the comics of being a mimic because uh, we already have that with Taskmaster in the MCU. It's really more of, again, the powers of her ancestors echoing through her, and that echo can be pulled, can be pushed forward to others as we see Maya literally empowering 
Bonnie and Chula and this. I love that Chula gets a couple punches in. That's awesome. So we get all of that element. I I like it. Does the scene does feel very rushed though? Um, I, I don't know, really I know what happened here, but it all feels very quick. It's like we have the conversation, and that's great. And I love the conversation part of it. When it escalates to the action. It's just a couple quick punches and then Fisk approaches, attacks Maya and then she uses the healing powers to take him back to the source of his own pain and his own anger and tells him to give that, you know, of course, in his bedroom overhearing uh, the abuse of, of his father to, on his mother. And of course, we remember a lot of that from Daredevil and we see this example of it here and Maya now saying, you know, trying to heal pit, uh, heal Fisk by taking away, by taking his pain and anger onto herself to try and heal him. Did she? We don't know. Even Fisk doesn't know exactly what's happened there as he's asking, what did she do before he's whisked away? Um, and then, you know, onto his private plane, which we'll catch up in the mid credit scene. It did feel very rushed, though. Like, I, I love the conversation, and I love that Maya gets a chance to you know, affirm what legacy exactly she's a part of and claim that part of herself and her identity. I love all of that, but I also just feel like this is so condensed that it just, it can't really breathe. And some of it also doesn't pass muster. I'm like, Wilson Fisk has, you know, avoided a lot of trouble by being away from these things. Like, I don't really buy that Wilson Fisk is going to be physically present when the plan is for two vanfuls of his men and another guy to have machine guns in an RPG and launch an attack, what would what would be a terrorist attack on a Choctaw Nation powwow. I don't believe that Fisk is going to be in close proximity to that. Not really his style, not really his strategy. But even if I get past the that practical thing of I, I just don't feel like the character does that. Um, the rest of it he does do as far as, you know, confronting Maya and wanting to, you know, hurt her by hurting her family in front of her. All of that is definitely par for the course with Wilson Fisk. It's not so much what they're doing there is incorrect. Again, a lot of it, I think, is very good. And I love the representation of Echo's powers and what they are and how we see that. It just happens so fast that it just doesn't get the chance to really breathe and just resonate for a moment before it's uh, everything's just kind of whisked away. So there, just, there needs to be something there. Or if it's not going to happen in the action scene, then what this desperately needs is another conversation after that. We kind of cut right to an epilogue after this, which I'll get to in a moment, but something's got to breathe. Something, you know, characters have to kind of deal with this and process this a little bit. That would have been another great opportunity, whether, you know, for a follow-up conversation between Maya and Grandma or, or finally a conversation between Maya and Bonnie. There just needs to be something where these characters can kind of talk this out a little bit uh, as opposed to everything just feels now, like, especially once we get to this Choctaw Nation powwow, like, or really from the end of the scene between Maya and her mother, it just feels like a mad dash to the finish. There's great things happening in that mad dash, but it doesn't change what it feels like. I, I totally agree that the, there, the fight scene itself is rushed. It's I, which so is, fast. Like I didn't put a stopwatch yeah, on it, but it's quick. It's quick. And I feel like maybe because maybe it's, it didn't have the same, it didn't look great when you, with, with the extended fights, probably. That's what I kind of took out of it. Now, I want to make this very clear. I, I, I noticed that right off the bat. I'm like, that's a little odd, the way it's cut. Um, it felt like it probably didn't look as good, you know, long form. Maybe some of the actors were just, just didn't, you know, whatever. Well, there's, there's, there seems to be a good amount of this that is, uh, that is reshot which reshoots and additional photography are par for the course. But 
Um, I don't really remember Biscuits wearing hats too much, but he's got a hat on in the monster truck. <laughs> so and his hair looks like it's it's pretty short. Um, so it looks like Cody Lightning called back after he maybe got himself a haircut. Maybe I don't know. Maybe it's all stashed under the hat. I don't know. It just looked like his hair was shorter. Um, yeah. Henry shooting Zane. They're never anywhere close to being in the same frame. Um, you know, Zane, like it just these characters don't even appear to be fully present. Uh, and these actors don't appear to be occupying a lot of the same space. Which sometimes happens even without reshoots. It just happens because of actor scheduling during You're, principal yeah. photography. But it, as I said, there's there's a lot that feels cobbled together throughout this show, but it really feels cobbled together in in this sequence. Now, all that to be said, this when she use, how she defeats Kingpin, I thought was brilliant, and I I love the fact that she both kind of rejects him, but also still refers to him as uncle. Yeah. Which it it almost it felt to me like she kind of understood that that I the idea of of pain and and trying to heal and the whole idea again what I loved so much was you know the heal uh, and moving on from that pain was I I loved it I I cried at this part man I I straight up did maybe because I was emotional at this point and I was just like already. But I love the fact that it wasn't like she she like defeated him like from a I'm out fight you no 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 she defeated him by taking away his is like you know his pain that is a chef's kiss brilliant move in my opinion I absolutely adored this and I love the fact that she took that like, again because that's what, that's what drives I love the idea know, of it but the too. the execution of it is just very awkward and abrupt. I, 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 I don't know the fight scenes itself before. Sure. This didn't, didn't feel as rushed to me and maybe cause I'm, I'm, I love it so much and that's why I, I'm more forgiving of it. I love this part. I love the fact that it's so shocking to Kingpin. He can't even give the order to like to take her out. He's just like, he's just like, what's going on? Like he, he, I love that. Like there's something missing and I, I loved all that. It all worked for me. And again, like, I, that's why I'm, 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 I want to state beforehand, I might be more forgiving of this, of this show than, than maybe most people might, but I, I, yeah, I love this. I, 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 even though I totally agree it's abrupt as far as it's all the entire fight scene, the, the fight between her and Kingpin, I actually thought it worked for me 100%. I, I thought it was great. And I thought, uh, yeah, I, I do love it as a resolution, right? I, I love that right. Maya in the first episode, we go back to the moment that, you know, her her solution for Kingpin was violence, right? It was to kill him. And then this one, her instead of trying to kill him, now she wants to heal him. And we already resolved the fact that, like, she didn't want to kill him. If she wanted to, she could have. She already had opportunities to try and kill him again. She did not take those opportunities. It's not what she wanted to do. And even now, when she's forced to defend herself, the option that she chooses is to try and heal him. I don't, well... I think she's healed him to an extent. I don't think it's ultimately going to change who he is, and that's going to be part of the point. I think when we catch up with this character, presumably in Daredevil Born Again, I'll talk more about that when we get to the mid credit scene before we wrap up here. But I do think that I like, again, I really like the idea of it, but because it's just thrown into this really rushed action sequence, and even like the, even before it has a chance to really kind of settle in maybe what she did, it's just, what did you do? And then he's gone, you know, whisk away, cut to him in the car, taking off. Like, it, it's just... 
it comes it, it's all moving uh more quickly than it should and and i or at least for me anyway in my opinion and it does take away from uh take away the impact a little bit um but it doesn't change again that i i love the idea of this i love what her powers are how they manifest how they're utilized how they're shared and echo through others that part i think is all uh, is all really really great and you know uplifting and so and, and i want to be clear you know before we get to you know the mid credit scene, but like I, I hope you've heard, uh, I think you've all heard a lot of praise from me over the course of this show. Like I really do, I like this show in spite of the criticisms that I have because the stuff that works in the show works well enough that it's not like my overall assessment is this is a bad show. I think this is a good but incomplete show is how I feel about it. And some people say, well, if it's incomplete, then that should automatically mean it's bad. And if that if that is how someone feels about it, fine. That's not necessarily how I feel. It's a little more nuanced than that. That I, I think there's enough here that's that's worth um, that's worth praising. That is totally enjoyable and does emotionally resonate. And it doesn't stop to do that. That doesn't go away simply because there are things that I don't like. And even the again the stuff that I don't like, it's it's not stuff that's there that I think is is not very good. It's really much has much more to do with stuff that I just feel like is missing and would make the things that I do like about this show even better. But anyway, uh our epilogue after this, you know, Maya and her mom, that flashback to them releasing the bird. Maya sitting alone remembering her family before being off on her bike. Is she headed out of town? No, it's a new family dinner tradition. As we see her embrace Chula, I don't know that everything's all good. There's a lot that they still have to talk out, but at least we see that they are on the road to uh, to repairing their relationship. And then we see uh, Maya and Bonnie share a look with one another that suggests maybe they are going to have that talk. We just don't get to see it. I think we needed to see that conversation because I think it would have had value to not just the characters, but the overall story, the overall show, or there would have been another way of doing that perhaps, but they had something that was kind of ready-made, I thought, to uh to cover that ground so that's again where i feel like things were rushed we didn't have to go immediately from fisk is gone to family dinner and everything seems to be fine i think even at the choctaw nation powwow after the danger was gone would have been a great opportunity for as i said conversation between maya and bonnie conversation another conversation between maya and chula conversation between maya and henry any insert character here, but some scene that really would have just allowed everything to kind of really sink in. And it doesn't have to be super long, so I'm not asking for another 20 minutes onto this 37-minute episode, but there was time to spare um, if they want, or there should have been additional time added to uh, to kind of cover that and let, that, let the climax of this show kind of sink in uh, a little bit more as opposed to just going right into the, the quick cut epilogue. But uh, any other thoughts on the on the the last pieces, Paul? Before we get into the mid credit scene, no, I'm ready to go mid credit right now, yo. All right, let's do it, man. Um, yes, this uh, I don't know if I've ever seen anything more on the nose than this mid credit scene. Uh, mm-hmm. more, I, don't, mm-hmm. I don't know that I've seen. We're talking Wilson Fisk, so it's appropriate. I don't know that I've seen heavier hands uh, than mm. than this mid credit scene. So Fisk aboard his private plane wants a meeting with all the remaining heads of his uh, criminal organization to stabilize the situation before it spirals out of control. What is that situation? 
Paul, they could have ended the scene right here by showing him watching TV with a, a newscast and the lower third being uh, New York City race for mayor, no clear front runner. Right there, I already knew what this scene was about. Mm-hmm. But then we got to have the, you know, the political analysts going back and forth talking about how voters want someone who understands the pain and the frustration they're going through, a bare-knuckled brawler, an outsider, someone who's not afraid to take on the establishment and would do well in this race. Wouldn't that candidate have emerged by now? Is that candidate even out there? Sure, it's late in the process, but there's still an opportunity. It could be anybody's race, as Wilson Fisk just keeps leaning in and in and in. He probably falls over uh, if they don't cut the camera in that scene, uh, as Wilson Fisk has his new calling. Like I said, you cannot be more on the nose than that. Uh, you can't be heavier-handed than that was. They laid it on so thick that I was like, oh, man. Um, for a show that maybe could have used could have used a, a little bit of a heavier hand in other places to go to be the heaviest with the mid credit scene, I was like, oh, geez. I, I love what this scene means in terms of what's next for Wilson Fisk. The execution of this, as I said, I was I was laughing out loud by the end of it. Now, look, I also understand part of the reason for the dialogue is they want to make it obvious about, you know, maybe some real world parallels that they're drawing here between Wilson Fisk and and others. So there's that part of it for sure. But I also think that um, I I still don't think they needed to go as heavy handed as as they did with it, because, as I said, at certain at. At a certain point, it just kind of becomes comical how obvious they're being. Um, so there was that part of it. But as I said, I am, I do like this mid credit scene for what it means about Wilson Fisk because now we have important questions about this guy. Like, has have his pain and anger really been healed? We'll have to see. But even if they have been, like, what does that mean for Wilson Fisk? If the pain and anger that maybe deep down he's blamed for to whatever extent he would agree or admit to being a monster, which which isn't much. But if he ever really would admit that to himself, he's had his excuse, right? He's had his reasons. My pain, my anger, you know, I have I have accumulated, I have amassed power and and strength so that I never feel like I'm in this situation, right? That I never feel powerless like I did when my dad was abusing my mother and I, like, I never want to be in that position again. So I'm just going to have as much power as possible to make sure that I dictate the terms to everyone else. No one ever dictates terms to me. All of that, right? Well, what if the pain and the anger goes away and he still wants all that power and he still wants to do the bad things? Now, he's still going to be able to convince himself that he has a noble calling, right? He's hearing how much the voters want a guy like him, right? And that's... he. I'm the hero they're looking for. Like, that's exactly how what he's thinking and feeling in that moment. But when he still does the terrible things, how good is Wilson Fisk going to be at convincing himself? You know, can he still convince himself that he's a good guy, that he's well-intended? Um, it'll be interesting to see what that means for Wilson Fisk and how this uh, continues to shape him and what could be potentially a new era for him. And then also it's going to make things really challenging for people who go up against Wilson Fisk namely Matt Murdock, a.k.a. Daredevil, when he's born again on Disney+. Plus. Man, love this for a couple different reasons. Um, One, obviously, it's it's teen up, born again, which I'm getting more and more stoked on as things keep revealing as as they restructure that show, which I'm getting excited. Um, I'm going to say 
I'm very with because I think obviously this is obvious that born again is not going to be like the, uh, a one time thing. It's probably going to be like the the official reintroduction to all these characters, et cetera. Um, this is this is the the first piece of the major puzzle of like the side care or the side characters, excuse me, these street level characters kind of having their own uh, ongoing story, which may or may not involve Spider Man. I don't know. There's been a lot of rumors out there, but I'm going to say this. Uh, I'm not sure if you've read Devil's Reign at all, um, which is a more of a recent storyline that came out by Chip Zdarsky and Marco Cicchetto, um from the Daredevil run. Uh, super, super solid story. I, I actually like Devil's Reign quite a bit. It's a little bit like Civil War a little bit, uh, or I wouldn't say Civil War, but kind of that idea of like a the Superhero Registration Act, like, you know, you know that whole idea, but a little bit different because it's, it's put in by Mayor Fist, essentially. So lots of really interesting things there. If, if they're doing that storyline and they're bringing in Born Again, and not necessarily adopting uh, the born again story, or adopting or adapting, you could say. Um, I think Chip Zdarsky's run is probably where they may be going, which would be very interesting. Um, so, don't love Chip Zdarsky's run completely. It's it's highs and lows. It's a whole different conversation for the comic binge. Wink, wink. Um, but uh, but no, I, I think Devil's Reign is a really cool story, and I, I like the idea where that could be going. Um, so. Yeah, I think this is a, a really exciting uh, venture. I, I can't wait because I think uh, he'd be perfect for you know going into something like this. So yeah, this is a, a really cool aspect. Yeah, I can't wait to see where this goes. Very much looking forward to it. So just wrapping up with some final thoughts on Echo. Again, I, I like a lot of this series. There are two episodes that I think are really strong. The first one and the fourth. And it says solid one with the second. And really, for me, the third and the fifth, again, it's really comes down to missed opportunities and, you know, seems to be missing material as opposed to, uh, you know, what what they showed us having, you know, significant flaws in it. There's so much that I, I like and love about this series that I'm still glad it's out there. I'm still glad we we have it. I'm happy to have watched it. I still enjoyed watching it for a second time and I'm not done watching it after uh, after going through it a couple of times. So uh, it's definitely something I still plan to revisit because there's a lot here that I think is going to be very enjoyable and rewarding to visit again and again. So a lot to like about Echo, but I think there was uh, there was more to like that just never quite made it into the show for one reason or another, just somehow in, in the final cut of what we ultimately saw. But so much good here, and, and I can't say enough really about the performances. I think that the the acting in this series was uh, just really stellar. And, and I think everybody did such a fantastic job uh, in the scenes that we saw. I mean, Alakwa Cox is just, a, you know, an absolute star as Maya. And again, Tantu Cardinal as Chula was another highlight. But they're not the only ones. Obviously, they're, you know, Chosky Spencer as Henry. Just a lot of great performances throughout this series. You know, a lot of challenging scenes that these actors were definitely up for and got the most out of, which is maybe what made me left me with that feeling of just wanting to see even more of it and more of those types of scenes between some of these characters just because of the extraordinary abilities that the actors were able to showcase here. So uh, I still really, really like Echo in spite of my criticisms. So it's still overall uh, an enjoyable watch for me. 
even if uh, even if certain aspects of, of certain episodes were a bit of a letdown, there's still too much for me, too much that I liked here for me to just outright dismiss it. So I, I still see it as again solid if solid if incomplete series. Paul, your final thoughts? Yeah, final thoughts are I think Echo is actually pretty a pretty good series, um, not perfect by any means, and I think it's a good indication and a good um, exa- example of what Marvel can do with a spotlight series. I like the short condensed stories. I don't, I don't need a sprawling epic every time. And I think that again, going back to episode one, which is the, I think the best episode, a great example of what they can do and utilize the connected universe uh, to, to their fullest advantage when they need to. So yeah, I think it's a good series. I love the ending. Maybe cry. Loved it. Love where they're going with Kingpin and, and potentially all these street level characters. So I'm excited. I think it's, yeah, I think it's a pretty, it's one of the, I think, better of the Marvel shows. Not the best, but for me, I really enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, I, I look forward to where Echo goes and uh, coming from here. Agreed. Yeah, I can't wait to see where she shows up next because, yeah, I'm very excited about the future of Maya Lopez in the Marvel Cinematic Universe as she continues to echo through, sorry, uh, the MCU in her future going forward. That is where we will wrap up this edition of MCU Fan Show. It's been a while since we've had uh, an episode this jam-packed, although we've had much longer. So, you know, two hours yes. and 45 minutes. I mean, come on. This is, uh, no. it's not short for us, but it's not, you know. <laughs> it's not No Way Home. Yeah, exactly. It's it's not a four-hour No Way Home review. So, in any event, that was thank you so much. Uh, if you're still here hearing this, that means you made it to the end. So, thanks for doing that. Uh, thank you for supporting us on MCU Fan Show. Be sure to check out Fan Show Plus at patreon.com slash Sean Gerber or on Apple Podcasts via Apple Podcast subscriptions. Follow us at MCU Fan Show on Instagram, Threads, and X, formerly Twitter. Don't forget to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you are enjoying the show. We would very much appreciate it. Thank you so much if you have left a rating and review. Thank you in advance if you are going to. Again, it is uh, very much appreciated, as is your support for the show. Uh, whether this was your first episode listening or you've been listening for however long we've been doing this, you know, 303 episodes now. Uh, Thank you very much for that. Paul, where can everybody keep up with you? Keep up with me on Twitter at Herman22 with two N's, a.k.a. P-Thug. Also, please follow the Comic Binge on YouTube. Go subscribe, go check out some videos, like, leave comments, etc. Appreciate everyone who already has. And you can follow me on, hang on, let me get all this right, Instagram threads and X formerly Twitter at Mr. Sean Gerber. So for Paul, I'm Sean. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.